international short stories volume one american stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org international short stories volume one american stories edited by william patton section eight uncle jim and uncle billy by bret hart part one they were partners the avuncular title was bestowed on them by cedar camp possibly in recognition of a certain matured good humor quite distinct from the spasmodic exuberant spirits of its other members and possibly from what to its youthful sense seemed their advanced ages which must have been at least forty they had also set habits even in their improvidence lost incalculable and unpayable sums to each other over euchre regularly every evening and inspected their sluice boxes punctually every saturday for repairs which they never made they even got to resemble each other after the fashion of old married couples or rather as in matrimonial partnerships was subject to the domination of a stronger character although in their case it is to be feared that it was the feminine uncle billy enthusiastic imaginative and loquacious who swayed the masculine steady-going and practical uncle jim they had lived in the camp since its foundation in eighteen forty nine and there seemed to be no reason why they should not remain there until its inevitable evolution into a mining town the younger members might leave through restless ambition or a desire for change or novelty they were subject to no such trifling mutation yet cedar camp was surprised one day to hear that uncle billy was going away the rain was softly falling on the bark thatch of the cabin with a muffled murmur like a sound heard through sleep the southwest trades were warm even at that altitude as the open door testified although a fire of pine bark was flickering on the adobe hearth and striking out answering fires from the freshly scoured culinary utensils on the rude sideboard which uncle jim had cleaned that morning with his usual serious persistency their best clothes which were interchangeable and worn alternately by each other on festal occasions hung on the walls which were covered with a coarse sailcloth canvas instead of lath and plaster and were diversified by pictures from illustrated papers and stains from the exterior weather two bunks like ship's berths an upper and lower one occupied the gable end of this single apartment and on beds of coarse sacking filled with dry moss were carefully rolled their respective blankets and pillows they were the only articles not used in common and whose individuality was respected uncle jim who had been sitting before the fire rose as the square bulk of his partner appeared at the doorway with an armful of wood for the evening stove by that sign he knew it was nine o'clock for the last six years uncle billy had regularly brought in the wood at that hour and uncle jim had as regularly closed the door after him and set out their single table containing a greasy pack of cards taken from its drawer a bottle of whiskey and two tin drinking cups to this was added a ragged memorandum book and a stick of pencil the two men drew their stools to the table hold on a minute said uncle billy 
His partner laid down the cards as Uncle Billy extracted from his pocket a pill box and opening it gravely took a pill This was clearly an innovation on their regular proceedings for Uncle Billy was always in perfect health What's this for asked Uncle Jim half scornfully? Agent Ager You ain't got no Ager said Uncle Jim with the assurance of intimate cognizance of his partner's physical condition but it's a powerful preventive quinine saw this box at Riley's store and laid out a quarter on it We can keep it here comfortable for evenings. It's mighty soothing arter man's done a hard day's work on the river bar take one Uncle Jim gravely took a pill and swallowed it and handed the box back to his partner We'll leave it on the table sociable like in case any of the boys come in said Uncle Billy taking up the cards well, how do we stand? Uncle Jim consulted the memorandum book. You were owing me sixty-two thousand dollars on the last game, and the limit seventy-five thousand. Gee, Willikins! Ejaculated Uncle Billy. Let me see. He examined the book, feebly attempted to challenge the additions, but with no effect on the total. We ought to have made the limit a hundred thousand. He said seriously. Seventy-five thousand is only trifling in a game like ours, and you've set down my claim at Angel's, he continued. I allowed you ten thousand dollars for that, said Uncle Jim, with equal gravity, and it's a fancy price, too. The claim in question being an unprospected hillside ten miles distant, which Uncle Jim had never seen, and Uncle Billy had not visited for years, the statement was probably true nevertheless. Uncle Billy retorted, you can never tell how these things will pan out why only this morning I was taking a turn round shot uphill that you know is just rotten with quartz and gold and I couldn't help thinking how much it was like my old claim at angels I must take a day off to go on there and strike a pick in it if only for luck suddenly he paused and said strange ain't it you should speak of it tonight now I call that queer he laid down his cards and gazed mysteriously at his companion Uncle Jim knew perfectly that Uncle Billy had regularly once a week for many years Declared his final determination to go over to angels and prospect his claim Yet nevertheless he half responded to his partner's suggestion of mystery and a look of fatuous wonder crept into his eyes But he contented himself by saying cautiously you spoke of it first That's the more singular said Uncle Billy confidently and I've been thinking about it and kind of seeing myself thar all day it's mighty queer he got up and began to rummage among some torn and coverless books in the corner where's that dream book gone to the carson boys borrowed it replied uncle jim anyhow yours wasn't no dream only a kind of vision and the book don't take no stock in visions nevertheless he watched his partner with some sympathy and added that reminds me that I had a dream the other night of being in Frisco at a small hotel with heaps of money and all the time being sort of scared and bewildered over it. No, queried his partner, eagerly yet reproachfully. You never let on anything about it to me. It's mighty queer you having these strange feelings, for I've had them myself. And only tonight, Coming up from the spring, I saw two crows hopping in the trail, and I says, if I sees another, it's luck sure. 
and you'll think I'm lying, but when I went to the woodpile just now, there was the third one sitting up on a log as plain as I see you. Tell you what folks can laugh, but that's just what Jim Filgree saw the night before he made that big strike. They were both smiling, yet with an underlying credulity and seriousness as singularly pathetic as it seemed incongruous to their years and intelligence. Small wonder, however, that in their occupation and environment, living daily in an atmosphere of hope, expectation, and chance, looking forward each morning to the blind stroke of a pick that might bring fortune, they should see signs in nature and hear mystic voices in the trackless woods that surrounded them. Still less strange that they were peculiarly susceptible to the more recognized diversions of chance and were gamblers on the turning of a card who trusted to the revelation of a shovelful of upturned earth. It was quite natural, therefore, that they should return from their abstract form of divination to the table and their cards. But they were scarcely seated before they heard a crackling step in the brush outside, and the free latch of their door was lifted. A younger member of the camp entered. He uttered a peevish, Hello! which might have passed for a greeting, or might have been a slight protest at finding the door closed, drew the stool from which Uncle Jim had just risen before the fire, shook his wet clothes like a Newfoundland dog, and sat down. Yet he was by no means churlish nor coarse-looking, and this act was rather one of easy-going, selfish, youthful familiarity than of rudeness. The cabin of Uncles Billy and Jim was considered a public right, or common, of the camp. Conferences between individual miners were appointed there. I'll meet you at Uncle Billy's was a common tryst. Added to this was a tacit claim upon the partner's arbitrative powers, or the equal right to request them to step outside if the interviews were of a private nature. Yet there was never any objection on the part of the partners, and tonight there was not a shadow of resentment of this intrusion in the patient good-humored tolerant eyes of uncles jim and billy as they gazed at their guest perhaps there was a slight gleam of relief in uncle jim's when he found that the guest was unaccompanied by any one and that it was not a tryst it would have been unpleasant for the two partners to have stayed out in the rain while their guests were exchanging private confidences in their cabin while there might have been no limit to their goodwill there might have been some to their capacity for exposure Uncle Jim drew a huge log from beside the hearth and sat on the driest end of it while their guest occupied the stool. The young man, without turning away from his discontented, peevish brooding over the fire, vaguely reached backward for the whiskey bottle and Uncle Billy's tin cup, to which he was assisted by the latter's hospitable hand. But on setting down the cup, his eye caught sight of the pill-box. "'What's that?' he said with gloomy scorn. "'Rat poison?' Quinine pills, agin agar, said Uncle Jim. The newest thing out keeps out damp like injun rubber. Take one to follow your whiskey. Me and Uncle Billy wouldn't think of settin' down quiet like in the evenin' out of work without em. Take one, you're welcome. We keep em out here for the boys. Customed as the partners were to adopt and wear each other's opinions before folks, as they did each other's clothing. Uncle Billy was nevertheless astonished and delighted at Uncle Jim's enthusiasm over his pills. The guest took one and swallowed it. Mighty bitter, he said. 
glancing at his hosts with the quick Californian suspicion of some practical joke. But the honest faces of the partners reassured him. That bitterness ye taste, said Uncle Jim quickly, is why the thing's gettin' its work. Sort of sickening the malaria and kind of waterproofing the insides all to onct and at the same lick. Don't you see? Put another in your vest pocket. You'll be crying for em like a child afore you get home. Thar. Well, how's things a goin' on your claim, Dick? Boomin', eh? The guest raised his head and turned it sufficiently to fling his answer back over his shoulder at his hosts. I don't know what you'd call boomin', he said gloomily. I suppose you two men sitting here comfortably by the fire, without caring whether school keeps or not, would call two feet of backwater over one's claim boomin'. I reckon you'd consider a hundred and fifty feet of sluicin' carried away and drifting to thunder down the South Fork something in the way of advertising to your old camp. I suppose you'd think it was an inducement to investors. I shouldn't wonder, he added still more gloomily, as a sudden dash of rain down the wide-throated chimney dropped in his tin cup. And it would be just like you two chaps, sittin' there gormandizing over your quinine, if you said this rain that lasted three weeks was something to be proud of. It was the cheerful and the satisfying custom of the rest of the camp, for no reason whatever, to hold Uncle Jim and Uncle Billy responsible for its present location, its vicissitudes, the weather, or any convulsion of nature. And it was equally the partner's habit, for no reason whatever, to accept these animadversions and apologize. It's a rain that's soft and mellowin', said Uncle Billy gently, and supplin' to the sinews and muscles. Did you ever notice, Jim, ostentatiously to his partner, did you ever notice that you get into a kind of sweaty lather workin' in it, sort of openin' to the pores? Fetches em every time, said Uncle Billy. Better nor fancy soap. The guest laughed bitterly. Well, I'm going to leave it to you. I reckon to cut the whole concern tomorrow and light out for something new. It can't be worse than this. The two partners looked grieved, albeit they were accustomed to these outbursts. Everybody who thought of getting away from Cedar Camp used it first as a threat to these patient men, after the fashion of runaway nephews, or made an exemplary scene of their going. Better think twice afore you go, said Uncle Billy. I've seen worse weather afore you came, said Uncle Jim slowly. Water all over the bar, the mud so deep ye couldn't get to angels for a sack of flour, and we had to grub on pine nuts and jackass rabbits. And yet we stuck by the camp, and here we are. The mild answer apparently goaded their guest to fury. He rose from his seat, threw back his long dripping hair from his handsome but querulous face, and scattered a few drops on the partners. Yes, that's just it. That's what gets me. Here you stick, and here you are, and here you'll stick and rust until you starve or drown. Here you are. Two men who ought to be out in the world playing your part as grown men, stuck here like children playing house in the woods, playing work in your wretched mud-pie ditches and content. Two men not so old that you mightn't be taking your part in the fun of the world, going to balls or theatres or paying attention to girls, and yet old enough to have married and have your families around you, content to stay in this God-forsaken place old bachelors pigging together like poorhouse paupers that's what gets me say you like it 
say you expect by hanging on to make a strike and what does that amount to what are your chances how many of us have made or are making more than grub wages say you're willing to share and share alike as you do have you got enough for two aren't you actually living off each other aren't you grinding each other down choking each other's struggles as you sink together deeper and deeper in the mud of this cussed camp and while you're doing this aren't you by your age and position here holding out hopes to others that you know cannot be fulfilled accustomed as they were to the half querulous half humorous but always extravagant criticism of the others there was something so new in this arraignment of themselves that the partners for a moment sat silent there was a slight flush on uncle billy's cheek and there was a slight paleness on uncle jim's he was the first to reply but he did so with a certain dignity which neither his partner nor their guest had ever seen on his face before as it's our fire that's warmed ye up like this dick bullen he said slowly rising with his hand resting on uncle billy's shoulder and as it's our whiskey that's loosened your tongue i reckon we must put up with what you're sayin just as we've managed to put up with our own way of livin and not quarrel with ye under our roof the young fellow saw the change in uncle jim's face and quickly extended his hand with an apologetic backward shake of his long hair hang it all old man he said with a laugh of mingled contrition and amusement you mustn't mind what i said just now i've been so worried thinking of things about myself and maybe a little about you that i quite forgot i hadn't a call to preach to anybody least of all to you so we part friends uncle jim and you too uncle billy and you'll forget what i said in fact i don't know why i spoke at all only i was passing your claim just now and wondering how much longer your old sluice boxes would hold out and where in thunder you'd get others when they've caved in i reckon that sent me off that's all old chap uncle billy's face broke into a beaming smile of relief and it was his hand that first grasped his guests uncle jim quickly followed with as honest a pressure but with eyes that did not seem to be looking at bullen though all trace of resentment had died out of them he walked to the door with him again shook hands but remained looking out in the darkness some time after dick bullen's tangled hair and broad shoulders had disappeared meantime uncle billy had resumed his seat and was chuckling and reminiscent as he cleaned out his pipe kind of reminds me of joe sharp when he was cleaned out at poker by his own partners in his own cabin coming up here and bedeviling us about it what was it you lint him but uncle jim did not reply and uncle billy taking up the cards began to shuffle them smiling vaguely yet at the same time somewhat painfully arter all dick was mighty cut up about what he said and i felt kinder sorry for him and you know i rather cotton to a man that speaks his mind sort of clears him out you know of all the slum gullion that's in him it's like washing out a pan of prospecting you pour in the water and keep slushing it around and round and out comes first the mud and dirt and then the gravel and then the black sand and then it's all out and there's a speck of gold glistening at the bottom then you think there was something in what he said said uncle jim facing about slowly an odd tone in his voice made uncle billy look up no he said quickly shying with the instinct of an easy pleasure-loving nature from a possible grave situation no i don't think he ever got the color 
but what are we moonin about for ain't you going to play it's more'n half past nine now thus adjured uncle jim moved up to the table and sat down while uncle billy dealt the cards turning up the jack or right bower but without that exclamation of delight which always accompanied his good fortune nor did uncle jim respond with the usual corresponding simulation of deep disgust such a circumstance had not occurred before in the history of their partnership they both played in silence a silence only interrupted by a larger splash of raindrops down the chimney we ought to put a couple of stones on the chimney top edgewise like jack curtis does it keeps out the rain without interfering with the draft said uncle billy musingly what's the use if if what said uncle billy quietly if we don't make it broader said uncle jim half wearily they both stared at the chimney but uncle jim's eye followed the wall around to the bunks there were many discolorations on the canvas and the picture of the goddess of liberty from an illustrated paper had broken out in a kind of damp measly eruption i'll stick that funny handbill of the wash and soda i got at the grocery store the other day right over the liberty gal it's a mighty purty woman washin with short sleeves said uncle billy that's the comfort of them pictures you can always get something new and it adds thickness to the wall uncle jim went back to the cards in silence after a moment he rose again and hung his overcoat against the door wind's comin in he said briefly yes said uncle billy cheerfully but it wouldn't seem natural if there wasn't that crack in the door to let the sunlight in the mornings makes a kind of sundial you know when the streak o lights in that corner i says six o'clock when it's across the chimney i say seven and so tis it certainly had grown chilly and the wind was rising the candle guttered and flickered the embers on the hearth brightened occasionally as if trying to dispel the gathering shadows but always ineffectually the game was frequently interrupted by the necessity of stirring the fire after an interval of gloom in which each partner successively drew the candle to his side to examine his cards uncle jim said say well responded uncle billy are you sure you saw that third crow on the woodpile sure as i see you now and a durn sight plainer why nothing i was just thinking look here how do we stand now uncle billy was still losing nevertheless he said cheerfully i'm owing you a matter of sixty thousand dollars uncle jim examined the book abstractedly suppose he said slowly but without looking at his partner suppose as it's getting late now we play for my half share of the claim again the limit seventy thousand to square up your half share repeated uncle billy with amused incredulity my half share of the claim all of this your house you know one half of all that dick bullen calls our rotten starvation property reiterated uncle jim with a half smile uncle billy laughed it was a novel idea it was of course all in the air like the rest of their game yet even then he had an odd feeling that he would have liked dick bullen to have known it wade in old pard he said i'm on it uncle jim lit another candle to reinforce the fading light and the deal fell to uncle billy he turned up jack of clubs he also turned a little redder as he took up his cards looked at them 
and glanced hastily at his partner. It's no use playing, he said. Look here. He laid down his cards on the table. They were the ace, king, and queen of clubs, and jack of spades, or left bower, which, with the turned-up jack of clubs or right bower, comprised all the winning cards. By jingo, if we'd been playing four-handed, say you and me again some other ducks, we'd have made four in that deal, and heisted some money, eh? And his eyes sparkled. Uncle Jim also had a slight tremulous light in his own. Oh, no, I didn't see no three crows this afternoon, added Uncle Billy gleefully, as his partner in turn began to shuffle the cards with laborious and conscientious exactitude. Then dealing, he turned up a heart for trumps. Uncle Billy took up his cards one by one, but when he had finished, his face had become as pale as it had been red before. What's the matter? said Uncle Jim quickly, his own face growing white. Uncle Billy slowly and with breathless awe laid down his cards face up on the table. It was exactly the same sequence in hearts, with a knave of diamonds added. He could again take every trick. They stared at each other with vacant faces and a half-drawn smile of fear. They could hear the wind moaning in the trees beyond. There was a sudden rattling at the door. Uncle Billy started to his feet. But Uncle Jim caught his arm. Don't leave the cards. It's only the wind. Sit down, he said, in a low, awe-hushed voice. It's your deal. You were two before and two now. That makes you four. You've only one point to make to win the game. Go on. They both poured out a cup of whiskey, smiling vaguely, yet with a certain terror in their eyes. Their hands were cold. The card slipped from Uncle Billy's benumbed fingers. When he had shuffled them, he passed them to his partner to shuffle them also, but did not speak. When Uncle Jim had shuffled them methodically, he handed them back faithfully to his partner. Uncle Billy dealt them with a trembling hand. He turned up a club. If you're sure of these tricks, you know you've won, said Uncle Jim in a voice that was scarcely audible. Uncle Billy did not reply, but tremulously laid down the ace and right and left bowers. He had won. A feeling of relief came over each, and they laughed hysterically and discordantly. Ridiculous and childish as their contest might have seemed to a looker-on, to each the tension had been as great as that of the greatest gambler, without the gambler's trained restraint, coolness, and composure. Uncle Billy nervously took up the cards again. Don't, said Uncle Jim gravely. It's no use. The luck's gone now. Just one more deal, pleaded his partner. Uncle Jim looked at the fire. Uncle Billy hastily dealt and threw the two hands face up on the table. They were the ordinary average cards. He dealt again with the same result. I told you so, said Uncle Jim without looking up. It certainly seemed a tame performance after their wonderful hands. And after another trial, Uncle Billy threw the cards aside and drew his stool before the fire. Mighty queer, weren't it? he said, with reminiscent awe. Three times running. Do you know, I felt a kind of creepy feeling down my back all the time. Crikey, what luck. None of the boys would believe it if we told them, least of all that Dick Bullen, who don't believe in luck anyway. Wonder what he'd have said. And Lord, how he'd have looked. Wall. What are you staring so for? Uncle Jim had faced around and was gazing at Uncle Billy's good-humored simple face. Nothing, he said briefly, and his eyes again sought the fire. 
then don't look as if you were seeing something you give me the creeps returned uncle billy a little petulantly let's turn in afore the fire goes out the fateful cards were put back into the drawer the table shoved against the wall the operation of undressing was quickly got over the clothes they wore being put on top of their blankets uncle billy yawned i wonder what kind of a dream i'll have tonight it ought to be something to explain that luck this was his good night to his partner in a few moments he was sound asleep not so uncle jim he heard the wind gradually go down and in the oppressive silence that followed could detect the deep breathing of his companion and the far-off yelp of a coyote his eyesight becoming accustomed to the semi-darkness broken only by the scintillation of the dying embers of their fire he could take in every detail of their sordid cabin and the rude environment in which they had lived so long the dismal patches on the bark roof the wretched makeshifts of each day the dreary prolongation of discomfort were all plain to him now without the sanguine hope that had made them bearable and when he shut his eyes upon them it was only to travel in fancy down the steep mountainside that he had trodden so often to the dreary claim on the overflowed river to the heaps of tailings that encumbered it like empty shells of the hollow profitless days spent there which they were always waiting for the stroke of good fortune to clear away he saw again the rotten sluicing through whose hopeless rifts and holes even their scant daily earnings had become scantier at last he arose and with infinite gentleness let himself down from his berth without disturbing his sleeping partner and wrapping himself in his blanket went to the door which he noiselessly opened from the position of a few stars that were glittering in the northern sky he knew that it was yet scarcely midnight there were still long restless hours before the day in the feverish state into which he had gradually worked himself it seemed to him impossible to wait for the coming of the dawn but he was mistaken for even as he stood there all nature seemed to invade his humble cabin with its free and fragrant breath and invest him with its great companionship he felt again in that breath that strange sense of freedom that mystic touch of partnership with the birds and beasts the shrubs and trees in this greater home before him it was this vague communion that had kept him there that still held these world-sick weary workers in their rude cabins on the slopes around him and he felt upon his brow that balm that had nightly lulled him and them to sleep and forgetfulness he closed the door turned away crept as noiselessly as before into his bunk again and presently fell into a profound slumber but when uncle billy awoke the next morning he saw it was late for the sun piercing the crack of the closed door was sending a pencil of light across the cold hearth like a match to rekindle its dead embers his first thought was of his strange luck the night before and of disappointment that he had not had the dream of divination that he had looked for he sprang to the floor but as he stood upright his glance fell on uncle jim's bunk it was empty not only that but his blankets uncle jim's own particular blankets were gone a sudden revelation of his partner's manner the night before struck him now with the cruelty of a blow a sudden intelligence perhaps the very divination that he had sought flashed upon him like lightning 
He glanced wildly around the cabin. The table was drawn out from the wall a little ostentatiously, as if to catch his eye. On it was lying the stained, shamey-skin purse in which they had kept the few grains of gold remaining from their last week's clean-up. The grains had been carefully divided, and half had been taken. But near it lay the little memorandum book, open, with a stick of pencil lying across it. A deep line was drawn across the page on which was recorded their imaginary extravagant gains and losses, even to the entry of Uncle Jim's half-share of the claim which he had risked and lost. Underneath were hurriedly scrawled the words, Settled by your luck last night, old pard, James Foster. End of section 8《International Short Stories, Volume 1 — American Stories — This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. — International Short Stories, Volume 1 — American Stories, edited by William Patton. Section 9 — Uncle Jim and Uncle Billy by Bret Hart. Part 2. It was nearly a month before Cedar Camp was convinced that Uncle Billy and Uncle Jim had dissolved partnership. Pride had prevented Uncle Billy from revealing his suspicions of the truth, or of relating the events that preceded Uncle Jim's clandestine flight, and Dick Bullen had gone to Sacramento by stagecoach the same morning. He briefly gave out that his partner had been called to San Francisco on important business of their own, and that indeed might necessitate his own removal there later. In this he was singularly assisted by a letter from the absent Jim, dated at San Francisco, begging him not to be anxious about his success, as he had hopes of presently entering a profitable business, but with no further allusions to his precipitate departure nor any suggestion of a reason for it. For two or three days Uncle Billy was staggered and bewildered. In his profound simplicity he wondered if his extraordinary good fortune that night had made him deaf to some explanation of his partner's, or, more terrible, if he had shown some low and incredible intimation of taking his partner's extravagant bet as real and binding. In this distress he wrote to Uncle Jim an appealing and apologetic letter, albeit somewhat incoherent and inaccurate, and bristling with misspelling, camp slang, and old partnership jibes. But to this elaborate epistle he received only Uncle Jim's repeated assurances of his own bright prospects, and his hopes that his old partner would be more fortunate, single-handed, on the old claim. For a whole week or two Uncle Billy sulked, but his invincible optimism and good humor got the better of him, and he thought only of his old partner's good fortune. He wrote him regularly, but always to one address, a box at the San Francisco post office, which, to the simple-minded Uncle Billy, suggested a certain official importance. To these letters Uncle Jim responded regularly, but briefly. From a certain intuitive pride in his partner and his affection, Uncle Billy did not show these letters openly to the camp, 
although he spoke freely of his former partner's promising future and even read them short extracts it is needless to say that the camp did not accept uncle billy's story with unsuspecting confidence and on the contrary a hundred surmises humorous or serious but always extravagant were afloat in cedar camp the partners had quarreled over their clothes uncle jim who was taller than uncle billy had refused to wear his partner's trousers they had quarreled over cards uncle jim had discovered that uncle billy was in possession of a coal deck or marked pack they had quarreled over uncle billy's carelessness in grinding up half a box of bilious pills in the morning's coffee a gloomily imaginative mule driver had darkly suggested that as no one had really seen uncle jim leave the camp he was still there and his bones would yet be found in one of the ditches while a still more credulous miner averred that what he had thought was the cry of a screech owl the night previous to uncle jim's disappearance might have been the agonized utterance of that murdered man it was highly characteristic of that camp and indeed of others in california that nobody not even the ingenious theorists themselves believed their story and that no one took the slightest pains to verify or disprove it happily uncle billy never knew it and moved all unconsciously in this atmosphere of burlesque suspicion and then a singular change took place in the attitude of the camp towards him and the disrupted partnership hitherto for no reason whatever all had agreed to put the blame upon billy possibly because he was present to receive it but as days passed that slight reticence and dejection in his manner which they had at first attributed to remorse and a guilty conscience now began to tell as absurdly in his favor here was uncle billy toiling through the ditches while his selfish partner was lolling in the lap of luxury in san francisco uncle billy's glowing accounts of uncle jim's success only contributed to the sympathy now fully given in his behalf and their execration of the absconding partner it was proposed at big store that a letter expressing the indignation of the camp over his heartless conduct to his late partner william fall should be forwarded to him condolences were offered to uncle billy and uncouth attempts were made to cheer his loneliness a procession of half a dozen men twice a week to his cabin carrying their own whiskey and winding up with a stag dance before the premises was sufficient to lighten his eclipse gaiety and remind him of a happier past surprise working parties visited his claim with spasmodic essays towards helping him and great good humor and hilarity prevailed it was not an unusual thing for an honest miner to arise from an idle gathering in some cabin and excuse himself with a remark that he reckoned he'd put in an hour's work in uncle billy's tailings and yet as before it was very improbable if any of these reckless benefactors really believed in their own earnestness or in the gravity of the situation indeed a kind of hopeful cynicism ran through their performances like as not uncle billy is still in cahoots i e shares with his old pard and is just laughing at us as he's sending him accounts of our tom foolin and so the winter passed and the rains and the days of cloudless skies and chill starlit nights began there were still freshets from the snow reservoirs piled high in the sierran passes and the bar was flooded 
but that passed too and only the sunshine remained monotonous as the seasons were there was a faint movement in the camp with the stirrings of the sap in the pines and cedars and then one day there was a strange excitement on the bar men were seen running hither and thither but mainly gathering in a crowd on uncle billy's claim that still retained the old partner's names in the fall and foster to add to the excitement there was the quickly repeated report of a revolver to all appearance aimlessly exploded in the air by someone on the outskirts of the assemblage as the crowd opened uncle billy appeared pale hysterical breathless and staggering a little under the back-slapping and hand-shaking of the whole camp for uncle billy had struck it rich had just discovered a pocket roughly estimated to be worth fifteen thousand dollars although in that supreme moment he missed the face of his old partner he could not help seeing the unaffected delight and happiness shining in the eyes of all who surrounded him it was characteristic of that sanguine but uncertain life that success and good fortune brought no jealousy nor envy to the unfortunate but was rather a promise and prophecy of the fulfillment of their own hopes the gold was there nature but yielded up her secret there was no prescribed limit to her bounty so strong was this conviction that a long-suffering but still hopeful miner in the enthusiasm of the moment stooped down and patted a large boulder with the apostrophic good old gal then followed a night of jubilee a next morning of hurried consultation with a mining expert and speculator lured to the camp by the good tidings and then the very next night to the utter astonishment of cedar camp uncle billy with a draft for twenty thousand dollars in his pocket started for san francisco and took leave of his claim and the camp forever when uncle billy landed at the wharves of san francisco he was a little bewildered the golden gate beyond was obliterated by the incoming sea fog which had also roofed in the whole city and lights already glittered along the gray streets that climbed the grayer sand hills as a western man brought up by inland rivers he was fascinated and thrilled by the tall-masted sea-going ships and he felt a strange sense of the remoter mysterious ocean which he had never seen but he was impressed and startled by smartly dressed men and women the passing of carriages and a sudden conviction that he was strange and foreign to what he saw it had been his cherished intention to call upon his old partner in his working clothes and then clapped down on the table before him a draft for ten thousand dollars as his share of their old claim but in the face of these brilliant strangers a sudden and unexpected timidity came upon him he had heard of a cheap popular hotel much frequented by the returning gold miner who entered its hospitable doors but which held an easy access to shops and emerged in a few hours a gorgeous butterfly of fashion leaving his old chrysalis behind him thence he inquired his way hence he afterwards issued in garments glaringly new and ill-fitting but he had not sacrificed his beard and there was still something fine and original in his handsome weak face that overcame the cheap convention of his clothes making his way to the post office he was again discomfited by the great size of the building 
and bewildered by the array of little square letter-boxes behind glass which occupied one whole wall and an equal number of opaque and locked wooden ones legibly numbered his heart leaped he remembered the number and before him was a window with a clerk behind it uncle billy leaned forward can you tell me if the man that box 690b longs to is in the clerk stared made him repeat the question and then turned away but he returned almost instantly with two or three grinning heads besides his own apparently set behind his shoulders uncle billy was again asked to repeat his question and he did so why don't you go and see if 690 is in the box said the first clerk turning with affected asperity to one of the others that clerk went away returned and said with singular gravity he was there a moment ago but he's gone out to stretch his legs it's rather cramping at first and he can't stand it more than ten hours at a time you know but simplicity has its limits uncle billy had already guessed his real error in believing his partner was officially connected with the building his cheek had flushed and then paled again the pupils of his blue eyes had contracted into suggestive black points if you let me in at that window young fellers he said with equal gravity i'll show you how i can make you small enough to go into a box without crampin but i only wanted to know where jim foster lived at which the first clerk became perfunctory again but civil a letter left in his box would get you that information he said and here's paper and pencil to write it now uncle billy took the paper and began to write just got here come and see me at and he paused a brilliant idea had struck him he could impress both his old partner and the upstarts at the window he would put in the name of the latest swell hotel in san francisco said to be a fairy dream of opulence he added the oriental and without folding the paper shoved it in the window don't you want an envelope asked the clerk put a stamp on the corner of it responded uncle billy laying down a coin and she'll go through the clerk smiled but affixed the stamp and uncle billy turned away but it was a short-lived triumph the disappointment at finding uncle jim's address conveyed no idea of his habitation seemed to remove him farther away and lose his identity in the great city Besides he must now make good his own address and seek rooms at the Oriental he went thither the furniture and decorations Even in these early days of hotel building in San Francisco were extravagant and overstrained and Uncle Billy felt lost and lonely in his strange surroundings But he took a handsome suite of rooms paid for them in advance on the spot and then half frightened walked out of them to ramble vaguely through the city in the feverish hope of meeting his old partner at night his inquietude increased he could not face the long row of tables in the pillared dining-room filled with smartly dressed men and women he evaded his bedroom with its brocaded satin chairs and its gilt bedstead and fled to his modest lodgings at the good cheer house and appeased his hunger at its cheap restaurant in the company of retired miners and freshly arrived eastern immigrants two or three days passed thus in this quaint double existence three or four times a day he would enter the gorgeous oriental with affected ease and carelessness 
demand his key from the hotel clerk ask for the letter that did not come go to his room and gaze vaguely from his window on the passing crowd below for the partner he could not find and then return to the good cheer house for rest and sustenance on the fourth day he received a short note from uncle jim it was couched in his usual sanguine but brief and business-like style he was very sorry but important and profitable business took him out of town but he trusted to return soon and welcome his old partner he was also for the first time jocose and hoped that uncle billy would not see all the sights before he uncle jim returned disappointing as this procrastination was to uncle billy a gleam of hope irradiated it the letter had bridged over that gulf which seemed to yawn between them at the post office his old partner had accepted his visit to san francisco without question and had alluded to a renewal of their old intimacy for uncle billy with all his trustful simplicity had been tortured by two harrowing doubts one whether uncle jim in his new fledged smartness as a city man such as he saw in the streets would care for his rough companionship the other whether he uncle billy ought not to tell him at once of his changed fortune but like all weak unreasoning men he clung desperately to a detail he could not forego his old idea of astounding uncle jim by giving him his share of the strike as his first intimation of it and he doubted with more reason perhaps if jim would see him after he had heard of his good fortune for uncle billy had still a frightened recollection of uncle jim's sudden stroke for independence and that rigid punctiliousness which had made him doggedly accept the responsibility of his extravagant stake at euchre with a view of educating himself for uncle jim's company he saw the sights of san francisco as an overgrown and somewhat stupid child might have seen them with great curiosity but little contamination or corruption but i think he was chiefly pleased with watching the arrival of the sacramento and stockton steamers at the wharves in the hope of discovering his old partner among the passengers on the gangplank here with his old superstitious tendency and gambler's instinct he would augur great success in his search that day if any one of the passengers bore the least resemblance to uncle jim if a man or woman stepped off first or if he met a single person's questioning eye indeed this got to be the real occupation of the day which he would on no account have omitted and to a certain extent revived each day in his mind the morning's work of their old partnership he would say to himself it's time to go and look up jim and put off what he was pleased to think were his pleasures until this act of duty was accomplished in this singleness of purpose he made very few and no entangling acquaintances nor did he impart to anyone the secret of his fortune loyally reserving it for his partner's first knowledge to a man of his natural frankness and simplicity this was a great trial and was perhaps a crucial test of his devotion when he gave up his rooms at the oriental as not necessary after his partner's absence he sent a letter with his humble address to the mysterious lockbox of his partner without fear or false shame he would explain it all when they met but he sometimes treated unlucky and returning miners to a dinner and a visit to the gallery of some theatre yet while he had an active sympathy with and understanding of the humblest uncle billy 
who for many years had done his own and his partner's washing scrubbing mending and cooking and saw no degradation in it was somewhat inconsistently irritated by menial functions in men and although he gave extravagantly to waiters and threw a dollar to the crossing sweeper there was always a certain shy avoidance of them in his manner coming from the theater one night uncle billy was however seriously concerned by one of these crossing sweepers turning hastily before them and being knocked down by a passing carriage the man rose and limped hurriedly away but uncle billy was amazed and still more irritated to hear from his companion that this kind of menial occupation was often profitable and that at some of the principal crossings the sweepers were already rich men but a few days later brought a more notable event to uncle billy one afternoon in montgomery street he recognized in one of its smartly dressed frequenters a man who had a few years before been a member of cedar camp uncle billy's childish delight at this meeting which seemed to bridge over his old partner's absence was however only half responded to by the ex-miner and then somewhat satirically in the fullness of his emotion uncle billy confided to him that he was seeking his old partner jim foster and reticent of his own good fortune spoke glowingly of his partner's brilliant expectations but deplored his inability to find him and just now he was away on important business i reckon he's got back said the man dryly i didn't know he had a lock-box at the post office but i can give you his other address he lives at the presidio at washerwoman's bay he stopped and looked with a satirical smile at uncle billy but the latter familiar with the californian mining camp nomenclature saw nothing strange in it and merely repeated his companion's words you'll find him there good-bye so long sorry i'm in a hurry said the ex-miner and hurried away uncle billy was too delighted with the prospect of a speedy meeting with uncle jim to resent his former associates supercilious haste or even to wonder why uncle jim had not informed him that he had returned it was not the first time that he had felt how wide was the gulf between himself and these others and the thought drew him closer to his old partner as well as his old idea as it was now possible to surprise him with a draft but as he was going to surprise him in his own boarding-house probably a handsome one uncle billy reflected that he would do so in a certain style he accordingly went to a livery stable and ordered a landau and pair with a negro coachman seated in it in his best and most ill-fitting clothes he asked the coachman to take him to the presidio and lean back in the cushions as they drove through the streets with such an expression of beaming gratification on his good-humored face that the passers-by smiled at the equipage and its extravagant occupant to them it seemed not the unusual sight of the successful miner on a spree to the unsophisticated uncle billy their smiling seemed only a natural and kindly recognition of his happiness and he nodded and smiled back to them with unsuspecting candor and innocent playfulness these year frisco fellers ain't all slouches you bet he added to himself half aloud at the back of the grinning coachman 
Their way led through well-built streets to the outskirts, or rather to that portion of the city which seemed to have been overwhelmed by shifting sand dunes, from which half-submerged fences and even low houses barely marked the foe of highway. The resistless trade winds which had marked this change blew keenly in his face and slightly chilled his ardor. At a turn in the road the sea came in sight, and sloping toward it the great cemetery of Lone Mountain with white shafts and marbles that glittered in the sunlight, like the sails of ships waiting to be launched down that slope into the eternal ocean. Uncle Billy shuddered. What if it had been his fate to seek Uncle Jim there? Does your presidio, said the negro coachman a few moments later, pointing with his whip, and does yar washwoman's bay? Uncle Billy stared. The huge quadrangular fort of stone with a flag flying above its battlements stood at a little distance, pressing against the rocks, as if beating back the encroaching surges, between him and the fort. But further inland was a lagoon with a number of dilapidated, rudely patched cabins or cottages, like stranded driftwood around its shore. But there was no mansion, no block of houses, no street, not another habitation or dwelling to be seen. Uncle Billy's first shock of astonishment was succeeded by a feeling of relief. He had secretly dreaded a meeting with his old partner in the haunts of fashion. Whatever was the cause that made Uncle Jim seek this obscure retirement affected him but slightly. He even was thrilled with a vague memory of the old shiftless camp they had both abandoned, a certain instinct, he knew not why, or less still that it might be one of delicacy, made him alight before they reached the first house. Bidding the carriage wait, Uncle Billy entered, and was informed by a blousy Irish laundress at a tub that Jim Foster, or Arkansas Jim, lived at the fourth shanty beyond. He was at home, for he'd sprained his foot. Uncle Billy hurried on, stopped before the door of a shanty scarcely less rude than their old cabin, and half-timidly pushed it open. A growling voice from within, a figure that rose hurriedly leaning on a stick with an attempt to fly, but in the same moment sank back in a chair with an hysterical laugh, and Uncle Billy stood in the presence of his old partner. But as Uncle Billy darted forward, Uncle Jim rose again, and this time with outstretched hands. Uncle Billy caught them, and in one supreme pressure seemed to pour out and transfuse his whole simple soul into his partners. And there they swayed each other backward and forward and sideways by their still-clasped hands, until Uncle Billy, with a glance at Uncle Jim's bandaged ankle, shoved him by sheer force down into his chair. Uncle Jim was first to speak. Caught, begosh! I might have known you'd be as big a fool as me. Look, you Billy Fall, do you know what you've done? You've druv me out of the streets where I was making an honest living by day on three crossings. Yes, he laughed forgivingly. You druv me out of it by day just because I reckoned that sometime I might run into your darn fool face. Another laugh and the grasp of the hand, and then. Begosh, not content with ruining my business by day, when I took to it at night, you took to going out at nights too, and so put a stopper on me there. Shall I tell you what else you did? Well, by the holy poker, I owe this sprained foot to your darn foolishness and my own. For it was getting away from you one night after the theatre, 
that I got run into and run over. You see, he went on, unconscious of Uncle Billy's paling face, and with a naivete, though perhaps not a delicacy equal to Uncle Billy's own. I had to play roots on you with that lockbox business and these letters, because I didn't want you to know what I was up to, for you might not like it, and might think it was lowering to the old firm, don't you see? I wouldn't have gone into it, but I was played out, and I don't mind telling you now, old man, that when I wrote you that first chipper letter from the lockbox, I hadn't eat anything for two days. But it's all right now, with a laugh. Then I got into this business, thinking it nothing, just the very last thing, and do you know, old part, I couldn't tell anybody but you, and in fact I kept it just to tell you, I've made nine hundred and fifty-six dollars. Yes, sir, nine hundred and fifty-six dollars, solid money, in Adam and Company's bank, just out of my trade. What trade? asked Uncle Billy. Uncle Jim pointed to the corner, where stood a large, heavy crossing sweeper's broom. That trade! Certainly, said Uncle Billy with a quick laugh. It's an outdoor trade, said Uncle Jim gravely, but with no suggestion of awkwardness or apology in his manner. And there ain't much difference between sweeping a crossin' with a broom and raking over tailing with a rake. Only what ye get with a broom you have handed to ye, and you don't have to pick it up and fish it out ere the wet rocks and sluice gushin', and it's a heap less tirin' to the back. Certainly, you bet, said Uncle Billy enthusiastically, and yet with a certain nervous abstraction. I'm glad ye say so, for you see, I didn't know at first how you tumbled to my doing it until I'd made my pile, and if I hadn't made it, I wouldn't have set eyes on ye again, old pard, never. Do you mind my running out a minute, said Uncle Billy, rising? You see, I got a friend waiting for me outside, and I reckon, he stammered, I'll just run out and send him off so I can talk comfortable to ye. Ye ain't got anybody your own money to, said Uncle Jim earnestly. Anybody following you to get paid, huh? For I can just set down right here and write ye off a check on the bank. No, said Uncle Billy. He slipped out of the door and ran like a deer to the waiting carriage, thrusting a twenty-dollar gold piece into the coachman's hand. He said hoarsely, I ain't wantin' that carriage just now. You can drive around and have a private jamboree all by yourself the rest of the afternoon, and then come and wait for me at the top of the hill yonder. Thus quit of his gorgeous equipage, he hurried back to Uncle Jim, grasping his ten-thousand-dollar draft in his pocket. He was nervous. He was frightened. But he must get rid of the draft and his story and have it over. But before he could speak, he was unexpectedly stopped by Uncle Jim. Now look yere, Billy boy, said Uncle Jim. I got something to say to ye, and I might as well clear it off my mind at once, and then we can start fair again. Now, he went on with a half laugh, wasn't it enough for me to go on pretendin' I was rich and doin' a big business and gettin' up that lock-box dodge so ye couldn't find out where I hung out and what I was doin'? Wasn't it enough for me to go on with all this play-actin', but you, you long-legged ornery cuss, must get up and go to lyin' and play-actin' too. Me? Play-actin'? Me? Lyin'? gasped Uncle Billy. Uncle Jim leaned back in his chair and laughed. Do you think you could fool me? Do you think I didn't see through your little game of going to that swell oriental, but just rastlin' your hash and havin' a roll down at the good cheer? Do you think I didn't spy on ye and find that out? Oh, you long-eared jackass rabbit! 
He laughed until the tears came into his eyes, and Uncle Billy laughed too, albeit until the laugh on his face became quite fixed, and he was fain to bury his head in his handkerchief. And yet, said Uncle Jim, with a deep breath, gosh, I was frightened just for a minute. I thought maybe you had made a big strike when I got your first letter, and I made up my mind what I'd do. And then I remembered you was just that kind of an open sluice that couldn't keep anything to yourself, and you'd have been sure to have yelled it out to me the first thing. So I waited, and I found you out, you old sinner. He reached forward and dug Uncle Billy in the ribs. What would you have done? said Uncle Billy after a hysterical collapse. Uncle Jim's face grew grave again. I'd have, I'd have cleared out, out of Frisco, out of California, out of America. I couldn't have stood it. Don't think I would have begrudged ye your luck. No man would have been gladder than me. He leaned forward again and laid his hand caressingly upon his partner's arm. Don't think I'd have wanted to take a penny of it, but I thar, I couldn't have stood up under it. To have had you, you, you that I left behind, coming down here rolling in wealth and new partners and friends, and arrive upon me and this shanty, and, and he threw towards the corner of the room a terrible gesture, none the less terrible that it was illogical and inconsequent to all that had gone before, and, and, and that broom. There was a dead silence in the room. With it, Uncle Billy seemed to feel himself again transported to the homely cabin at Cedar Camp, and that fateful night, with his partner's strange, determined face before him, as then. He even fancied that he heard the roaring of the pines without, and did not know that it was the distant sea. But after a minute Uncle Jim resumed. Of course you've made a little raise somehow, or you wouldn't be here. Yes, said Uncle Billy eagerly. Yes, I've got, he stopped and stammered, I've got a, a few hundreds. Oh, oh, said Uncle Jim cheerfully. He paused and then added earnestly, I say, you ain't got left over and above your d -d -d foolishness at the Oriental as much as five hundred dollars. I've got, said Uncle Billy, blushing a little over his first deliberate and affected lie, I've got at least five hundred and seventy-two dollars. Yes, he added tentatively, gazing anxiously at his partner. I've got at least that. Gee, Willikins, said Uncle Jim with a laugh, and then eagerly. Look here, pard. Then we're on velvet. I've got nine hundred. Put your five with that, and I know a little ranch that we can get for twelve hundred. That's what I've been saving up for. That's my little game. No more mining for me. It's got a shanty twice as big as our old cabin, nigh on a hundred acres, and two mustangs. We can run it with two Chinamen and just make it howl. What you say, eh? He extended his hand. I'm in, said Uncle Billy, radiantly grasping Uncle Jim's. But his smile faded, and his clear, simple brow wrinkled in two lines. Happily, Uncle Jim did not notice it. Now then, old pard, he said brightly, We'll have a gay old time tonight, one of our jamborees. I've got some whiskey here and a deck of cards, and we'll have a little game, you understand, but not for keeps now. No siree. We'll play for beans. A sudden light illuminated Uncle Billy's face again, but he said with a grim desperation, Not tonight. I've got to go into town. That friend of mine expects me to go to the theater, don't you see? But I'll be out tomorrow at sunup, and we'll fix up this thing of the ranch. Seems to me you're kind of stuck on this friend, grunted Uncle Jim. 
Uncle Billy's heart bounded at his partner's jealousy. No, but I must, you know, he returned with a faint laugh. I say, it ain't at her, is it? said Uncle Jim. Uncle Billy achieved a diabolical wink and a creditable blush at his lie. Billy! Jim! And under cover of this festive gallantry, Uncle Billy escaped. He ran through the gathering darkness and toiled up the shifting sands to the top of the hill where he found the carriage waiting What said uncle Billy in a low confidential tone to the coachman what do you Frisco fellows allow to be the best biggest and riskiest gambling saloon here something high-toned you know the Negro grinned it was the usual case of the extravagant spendthrift miner though perhaps he had expected a different question and order. "'Day is the poker, the El Dorado, and the arcade saloon, boss,' he said, flicking his whip meditatively. "'Most gents from the mines preferred the poker, for day is dancing with the gals thrown in. But the real prima facie place for gents who go for bucking again the tiger and straight-out gambling is the arcade.' "'Drive there like thunder,' said Uncle Billy, leaping into the carriage." True to his word, Uncle Billy was at his partner's shanty early the next morning. He looked a little tired, but happy, and had brought a draft with him for five hundred and seventy-five dollars, which he explained was the total of his capital. Uncle Jim was overjoyed. They would start for Napa that very day and conclude the purchase of the ranch. Uncle Jim's sprained foot was a sufficient reason for his giving up his present vocation, which he could also sell at a small profit. His domestic arrangements were very simple. There was nothing to take with him. There was everything to leave behind. And that afternoon at sunset, the two reunited partners were seated on the deck of the Napa boat as she swung into the stream. Uncle Billy was gazing over the railing with a look of abstracted relief towards the Golden Gate, where the sinking sun seemed to be drawing towards him in the ocean, a golden stream that was forever pouring from the bay. And the three hill city beside it what uncle Billy was thinking of or what the picture suggested to him did not transpire for uncle Jim who emboldened by his holiday was luxuriating in an evening paper suddenly uttered a long-drawn whistle and moved closer to his abstracted partner look here he said pointing to a paragraph he had evidently just read just you listen to this and see if we ain't lucky you and me to be just what we air trustin to our own hard work and not thinkin of strikes and fortins just unbutton your ears billy while i reel off this year thing i've just struck in the paper and see what dang fools some men can make of themselves and that their reporter what wrote it must have seen it really uncle jim cleared his throat and holding the paper close to his eyes read aloud slowly a scene of excitement that recalled the palmy days of forty-nine was witnessed last night at the arcade saloon a stranger who might have belonged to that reckless epoch and who bore every evidence of being a successful pike county miner out on a spree appeared at one of the tables with a negro coachman bearing two heavy bags of gold selecting a faro bank as his base of operations he began to bet heavily and with apparent recklessness until his play excited the breathless attention of everyone in a few moments he had won a sum variously estimated at from eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a rumor went round the room that it was a concerted attempt to break the bank 
rather than the drunken freak of a western miner dazzled by some successful strike to this theory the man's careless and indifferent bearing toward his extraordinary gains lent great credence the attempt if such it was however was unsuccessful after winning ten times in succession the luck turned and the unfortunate bucket was cleared out not only of his gains but of his original investment which may be placed roughly at twenty thousand dollars this extraordinary play was witnessed by a crowd of excited players who were less impressed by even the magnitude of the stakes than the perfect sang-froid and recklessness of the player who it is said at the close of the game tossed a twenty-dollar gold piece to the banker and smilingly withdrew the man was not recognized by any of the habitues of the place there said uncle jim as he hurriedly slurred over the french substantive at the close did ye ever see such god-forsaken foolishness uncle billy lifted his abstracted eyes from the current still pouring its unreturning gold into the sulking sun and said with a depreciatory smile never nor even in the days of prosperity that visited the great wheat ranch of fallen foster did he ever tell his secret to his partner end of section nine International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Green in Tampa, Florida. International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 10. The Notary of Perigueux by H. W. Longfellow Do not trust thy body with a physician. He'll make thy foolish bones go without flesh in a fortnight, and thy soul walk without a body in a senite after. Surely. You must know, gentlemen, that there lived some years ago in the city of Perigueux an honest notary public, the descendant of a very ancient and broken-down family and the occupant of one of those old weather-beaten tenements which remind you of the times of your great-grandfather he was a man of an unoffending quiet disposition the father of a family though not the head of it for in that family the hen overcrowed the cock and the neighbors when they spake of the notary shrugged their shoulders and exclaimed poor fellow his spurs want sharpening and fine you understand me gentlemen he was henpecked. Well, finding no peace at home, he sought it elsewhere, as was very natural for him to do, and at length discovered a place of rest far beyond the cares and clamors of domestic life. This was a little café estaminet, a short way out of the city, whither he repaired every evening to smoke his pipe, drink sugar water, and play his favorite game of domino. There he met the boon companions he most loved, heard all the floating chit-chat of the day, laughed when he was in a merry mood, found consolation when he was sad, and at all times gave vent to his opinions without fear of being snubbed short by a flat contradiction. Now the notary's bosom friend was a dealer in clary and cognac, 
who lived about a league from the city and always passed his evenings at the estaminet. He was a gross corpulent fellow, raised from a full-blooded Gascon breed, and sired by a comic actor of some reputation in his way. He was remarkable for nothing but his good humor, his love of cards, and a strong propensity to test the quality of his own liquors by comparing them with those sold at other places. As evil communications corrupt good manners, the bad practices of the wine dealer won insensibly upon the worthy notary, and before he was aware of it, he found himself weaned from domino and sugar water and addicted to piquet and spiced wine. Indeed, it not infrequently happened that, after a long session at the estaminet, the two friends grew so urbane that they would waste a full half-hour at the door in friendly dispute which should conduct the other home. Though this course of life agreed well enough with the sluggish, phlegmatic temperament of the wine-dealer, it soon began to play the very deuce with the more sensitive organization of the notary and finally put his nervous system completely out of tune. He lost his appetite, became gaunt and haggard, and could get no sleep. Legions of blue devils haunted him by day, and by night strange faces peeped through his bed curtains, and the nightmare snorted in his ear. The worse he grew, the more he smoked and tippled, and the more he smoked and tippled, why, as a matter of course, the worse he grew. His wife alternately stormed, remonstrated, entreated, but all in vain. She made the house too hot for him. He retreated to the tavern. She broke his long-stemmed pipes upon the andirons. He substituted a short-stemmed one, which for safekeeping he carried in his waistcoat pocket. Thus the unhappy notary ran gradually down at the heel. What with his bad habits and his domestic grievances, he became completely hipped. He imagined that he was going to die, and suffered in quick succession all the diseases that ever beset mortal man. Every shooting pain was an alarming symptom, every uneasy feeling after dinner a sure prognostic of some mortal disease. In vain did his friends endeavor to reason and then to laugh him out of his strange whims. For when did ever jest or reason cure a sick imagination? His only answer was, Do let me alone. I know better than you what ails me. Well, gentlemen, things were in this state when, one afternoon in December, as he sat moping in his office, wrapped in an overcoat, with a cap on his head, and his feet thrust into a pair of furred slippers, a cabriolet stopped at the door, and a loud knocking without aroused him from his gloomy reverie. It was a message from his friend, the wine-dealer, who had been suddenly attacked with a violent fever, and growing worse and worse, bad now sent in the greatest haste for the notary to draw up his last will and testament. The case was urgent, and admitted neither excuse nor delay, and the notary, tying a handkerchief round his face, and buttoning up to the chin, jumped into the cabriolet, and suffered himself, though not without some dismal presentiments and misgivings of heart, to be driven to the wine-dealer's house. When he arrived, he found everything in the greatest confusion. On entering the house, he ran against the apothecary, who was coming downstairs with a face as long as your arm. And a few steps farther he met the housekeeper, 
for the wine dealer was an old bachelor running up and down and wringing her hands for fear that the good man should die without making his will he soon reached the chamber of his sick friend and found him tossing about in a paroxysm of fever and calling out loud for a draught of cold water the notary shook his head he thought this a fatal symptom for ten years back the wine dealer had been suffering under a species of hydrophobia which seemed suddenly to have left him when the sick man saw who stood by his bedside he stretched out his hand and exclaimed ah my dear friend have you come at last you see it is all over with me you have arrived just in time to draw up that that passport of mine ah grand diable how hot it is here water 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 will nobody give me a drop of cold water as the case was an urgent one the notary made no delay in getting his papers in readiness and in a short time the last will and testament of the wine-dealer was drawn up in due form. The notary guiding the sick man's hand as he scrawled his signature at the bottom. As the evening wore away, the wine-dealer grew worse and worse, and at length became delirious, mingling in his incoherent ravings the phrases of the credo and paternoster with the shibboleth of the dram-shop and the card-table. "'Take care! Take care!' there now credo in pop ding-a-ling-a-ling -a -ling. give me some of that sante dees why you old publican this wine is poisoned i know your tricks sanctum ecclesiam catholicam well well we shall see imbecile to have a tierce major and a seven of hearts and discard the seven by saint anthony capo you are lurched ha ha i told you so i knew very well there there don't interrupt me carnis resurrectionum e vita eternum with these words upon his lips the poor wine dealer expired meanwhile the notary sat cowering over the fire aghast at the fearful scene that was passing before him and now and then striving to keep up his courage by a glass of cognac Already his fears were on the alert, and the idea of contagion flitted to and fro through his mind. In order to quiet these thoughts of evil import, he lighted his pipe, and began to prepare for returning home. At that moment the apothecary turned round to him and said, "'Dreadful sickly time, this. The disorder seems to be spreading.' "'What disorder?' exclaimed the notary, with a movement of surprise. Two died yesterday and three today, continued the apothecary, without answering the question. Very sickly time, sir, very. But what disorder is it? What disease has carried off my friend here so suddenly? What disease? Why, scarlet fever, to be sure. And is it contagious? Certainly. Then I am a dead man, exclaimed the notary, putting his pipe into his waistcoat pocket and beginning to walk up and down the room in despair. "'I am a dead man. Now, don't deceive me. Don't, will you? What—what what are the symptoms?' "'A sharp burning pain in the right side,' said the apothecary. "'Oh, what a fool I was to come here!' In vain did the housekeeper and the apothecary strive to pacify him. He was not a man to be reasoned with, 
he answered that he knew his own constitution better than they did and insisted upon going home without delay unfortunately the vehicle he came in had returned to the city and the whole neighborhood was abed and asleep what was to be done nothing in the world but to take the apothecary's horse which stood hitched at the door patiently waiting his master's will well gentlemen as there was no remedy our notary mounted his raw-boned steed and set forth upon his homeward journey the night was cold and gusty and the wind right in his teeth overhead the leaden clouds were beating to and fro and through them the newly risen moon seemed to be tossing and drifting along like a cockboat in the surf now swallowed up in a huge billow of cloud and now lifted upon its bosom and dashed with silvery spray the trees by the roadside groaned with a sound of evil omen and before him lay three mortal miles beset with a thousand imaginary perils obedient to the whip and spur the steed leaped forward by fits and starts now dashing away in a tremendous gallop and now relaxing into a long hard trot while the rider filled with symptoms of disease and dire presentiments of death urged him on as if he were fleeing before the pestilence in this way by dint of whistling and shouting and beating right and left one mile of the fatal three was safely passed the apprehensions of the notary had so far subsided that he even suffered the poor horse to walk uphill but these apprehensions were suddenly revived again with tenfold violence by a sharp pain in the right side which seemed to pierce him like a needle it is upon me at last groaned the fear-stricken man heaven be merciful to me the greatest of sinners and must i die in a ditch after all hey get out get out and away went horse and rider at full speed hurry scurry uphill and down panting and blowing like a whirlwind at every leap the pain in the rider's side seemed to increase at first it was a little point like the prick of a needle then it spread to the size of a half franc piece then covered a place as large as the palm of your hand it gained upon him fast the poor man groaned aloud in agony faster and faster sped the horse over the frozen ground farther and farther spread the pain over his side to complete the dismal picture the storm commenced snow mingled with rain but snow and rain and cold were naught to him for though his arms and legs were frozen to icicles he felt it not the fatal symptom was upon him he was doomed to die not of cold but of scarlet fever at length he knew not how more dead than alive he reached the gate of the city a band of ill-bred dogs that were serenading at the corner of the street seeing the notary dash by joined in the hue and cry and ran barking and yelping at his heels it was now late at night and only here and there a solitary lamp twinkled from an upper story but on went the notary down this street and up that till at last he reached his own door there was a light in his wife's bedchamber the good woman came to the window alarmed at such a knocking and howling and clattering at her door so late at night and the notary was too deeply absorbed in his own sorrows to observe that 
The lamp cast the shadow of two heads in the window curtain. "'Let me in! Let me in! Quick! Quick!' he exclaimed, almost breathless from terror and fatigue. "'Who are you that come to disturb a lone woman at this hour of the night?' cried a sharp voice from above. "'Be gone about your business, and let quiet people sleep.' "'Oh, Diable, Diable, come down and let me in. I am your husband. Don't you know my voice? Quick, I beseech you, for I am dying here in the street.' After a few moments of delay and a few more words of parley, the door was opened, and the notary stalked into his domicile, pale and haggard in aspect, and as stiff and straight as a ghost. Cased from head to heel in an armor of ice, as the glare of the lamp fell upon him, he looked like a knight-errant, mailed in steel. But in one place his armor was broken. On his right side was a circular spot as large as the crown of your hat, and about as black. "'My dear wife,' he exclaimed, with more tenderness than he had exhibited for many years, "'reach me a chair. My hours are numbered. I am a dead man.' Alarmed at these exclamations, his wife stripped off his overcoat. Something fell from beneath it, and was dashed to pieces on the hearth. It was the notary's pipe. He placed his hand upon his side, and, lo, it was bare to the skin. Coat, waistcoat, and linen were burnt through and through, and there was a blister on his side as large over as your head. The mystery was soon explained, symptom and all. The notary had put his pipe into his pocket without knocking out the ashes. And so my story ends. "'Is that all?' asked the radical, when the storyteller had finished. "'That is all.' "'Well, what does your story prove?' "'That is more than I can tell. All I know is that the story is true.' "'And did he die?' asked the nice little man in the gosling green. "'Yes, he died afterward,' replied the storyteller, rather annoyed at the question. "'And... "'What did he die of?' continued the gosling green, following him up. "'What did he die of? Why, he died of a sudden.'" End of Section 10 Recording by Larry Green in Tampa, Florida International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories, edited by William Patton, Section 11, The Widow's Cruise, by F. R. Stockton. The Widow Duckett lived in a small village about ten miles from the New Jersey seacoast. In this village she was born, here she had married and buried her husband, and here she expected somebody to bury her, but she was in no hurry for this, for she had scarcely reached middle age. She was a tall woman with no apparent fat in her composition, and full of activity, both muscular and mental. She rose at six o'clock in the morning, cooked breakfast, set the table, washed the dishes when the meal was over, milked, churned, swept, washed, ironed, worked in her little garden, attended to the flowers in the front yard, and in the afternoon knitted and quilted and sewed, and after tea she either went to see her neighbors or had them come to see her. 
when it was really dark she lighted the lamp in her parlor and read for an hour and if it happened to be one of miss mary wilkins's books that she read she expressed doubts as to the realism of the characters therein described these doubts she expressed to dorcas networthy who was a small plump woman with a solemn face who had lived with the widow for many years and who had become her devoted disciple whatever the widow did that also did dorcas not so well for her heart told her she could never expect to do that but with a yearning anxiety to do everything as well as she could she rose at five minutes past six and in a subsidiary way she helped to get the breakfast to eat it to wash up the dishes to work in the garden to quilt to sew to visit and receive and no one could have tried harder than she did to keep awake when the widow read aloud in the evening all these things happened every day in the summer time but in the winter the widow and dorcas cleared the snow from their little front path instead of attending to the flowers and in the evening they lighted a fire as well as a lamp in the parlor sometimes however something different happened but this was not often only a few times in the year one of the different things occurred when mrs ducket and dorcas were sitting on their little front porch one summer afternoon one on the little bench on one side of the door and the other on the little bench on the other side of the door each waiting until she should hear the clock strike five to prepare tea but it was not yet a quarter to five when a one-horse wagon containing four men came slowly down the street dorcas first saw the wagon and she instantly stopped knitting mercy on me she exclaimed whoever those people are they are strangers here and they don't know where to stop for first they go to one side of the street and then to the other the widow looked around sharply humph she said those men are sailor men you might see that in a twinkling of an eye sailor men always drive that way because that is the way they sail ships they first tack in one direction and then in another mr ducket didn't like the sea remarked dorcas for about the three hundredth time no he didn't answered the widow for about the two hundred and fiftieth time for there had been occasions when she thought dorcas put this question inopportunely he hated it and he was drowned in it through trust in a sailorman which i never did nor shall do you really believe those men are coming here upon my word i do said dorcas and her opinion was correct the wagon drew up in front of mrs ducket's little white house and the two women sat rigidly their hands in their laps staring at the man who drove this was an elderly personage with whitish hair and under his chin a thin whitish beard which waved in the gentle breeze and gave dorcas the idea that his head was filled with hair which was leaking out from below is this the widow ducket's inquired this elderly man in a strong penetrating voice that's my name said the widow and laying her knitting on the bench beside her she went to the gate dorcas also laid her knitting on the bench beside her and went to the gate i was told said the elderly man at a house we touched at about a quarter of a mile back that the widow ducket's was the only house in this village where there was any chance of me and my mates getting a meal we are four sailors and we are making from the bay over to Cuppertown, and that's eight miles ahead yet and we are all pretty sharp set for something to eat this is the place said the widow and i do give meals if there is enough in the house and everything comes handy does everything come handy today said he it does said she and you can hitch your horse and come in but i haven't got anything for him oh that's all right said the man we brought along stores for him so we'll just make fast and then come in the two women hurried into the house in a state of bustling preparation for the furnishing of this meal meant one dollar in cash the four mariners all elderly men descended from the wagon each one scrambling with alacrity over a different wheel a box of broken ship biscuits was brought out and put on the ground in front of the horse who immediately set himself to eating with great satisfaction 
tea was a little late that day because there were six persons to provide for instead of two but it was a good meal and after the four seamen had washed their hands and faces at the pump in the back yard and had wiped them on two towels furnished by dorcas they all came in and sat down mrs ducket seated herself at the head of the table with the dignity proper to the mistress of the house and dorcas seated herself at the other end with the dignity proper to the disciple of the mistress no service was necessary for everything that was to be eaten or drunk was on the table when each of the elderly mariners had had as much bread and butter quickly baked soda biscuit dried beef cold ham cold tongue and preserved fruit of every variety known as his storage capacity would permit the mariner in command captain bird pushed back his chair whereupon the other mariners pushed back their chairs madam said captain bird we have all made a good meal which didn't need to be no better nor more of it and were satisfied but that horse out there has not had time to rest himself enough to go the eight miles that lies ahead of us so if it's all the same to you and this good lady we'd like to sit on that front porch a while and smoke our pipes i was a-looking at that porch when i came in and i bethought to myself what a rare good place it was to smoke a pipe in there's pipes been smoked there said the widow rising and it can be done again inside the house i don't allow tobacco but on the porch neither of us minds so the four captains betook themselves to the porch two of them seating themselves on the little bench on one side of the door and two of them on the little bench on the other side of the door and lighted their pipes shall we clear off the table and wash up the dishes said dorcas or wait until they are gone we will wait until they are gone said the widow for now that they are here we might as well have a bit of a chat with them when a sailor man lights his pipe he is generally willing to talk but when he is eaten you can't get a word out of him without thinking it necessary to ask permission for the house belonged to her the widow ducket brought a chair and put it in the hall close to the open front door and dorcas brought another chair and seated herself by the side of the widow do all you sailor men belong down there at the bay asked mrs ducket thus the conversation began and in a few minutes it had reached a point at which captain bird thought it proper to say that a great many strange things happened to seamen sailing on the sea which lands people never dream of such as anything in particular asked the widow at which remark dorcas clasped her hands in an expectancy at this question each of the mariners took his pipe from his mouth and gazed upon the floor and thought there's a good many strange things happened to me and my mates at sea would you and that other lady like to hear any of them asked captain bird we would like to hear them if they are true said the widow there's nothing happened to me and my mates that isn't true said captain bird and here is something that once happened to me i was on a whaling voyage when a big sperm whale just as mad as a fiery bull came at us head on and struck the ship at the stern with such tremendous force that his head crashed right through her timbers and he went nearly half his length into her hull the hold was mostly filled with empty barrels for we was just beginning our voyage and when he had made kindling wood of these there was room enough for him we all expected that it wouldn't take five minutes for the vessel to fill and go to the bottom and we made ready to take to the boats but it turned out we didn't need to take to no boats for as fast as the water rushed into the hold of the ship that whale drank it and squirted it up through the two blow-holes in the top of his head and as there was an open hatchway just over his head the water all went into the sea again and that whale kept working day and night pumping the water out until we beached the vessel on the island of trinidad the whale helping us wonderful on our way over by the powerful working of his tail which being outside in the water acted like a propeller i don't believe anything stranger than that ever happened to a whaling ship no said the widow i don't believe anything ever did 
captain bird now looked at captain sanderson and the latter took his pipe out of his mouth and said that in all his sailing around the world he had never known anything queerer than what happened to a big steamship he chanced to be on which ran into an island in a fog everybody on board thought the ship was wrecked but it had twin screws and was going at such a tremendous speed that it turned the island entirely upside down and sailed over it and he had heard tell that even now people sailing over the spot could look down into the water and see the roots of the trees and the cellars of the houses captain sanderson now put his pipe back into his mouth and captain burris took out his pipe i was once in an obelisk ship said he that used to trade regular between egypt and new york carrying obelisks we had a big obelisk on board the way they ship obelisks is to make a hole in the stern of the ship and run the obelisk in pointed end foremost and this obelisk filled up nearly the whole of that ship from stern to bow we was about ten days out and sailing afore a northeast gale with the engines at full speed when suddenly we spied breakers ahead and our captain saw that we was about to run on a bank now if we hadn't had an obelisk on board we might have sailed over that bank but the captain knew that with an obelisk on board we drew too much water for this and that we'd be wrecked in about fifty-five seconds if something wasn't done quick so he had to do something quick and this is what he did he ordered all steam on and drove slam bang on that bank just as he expected we stopped so sudden that that big obelisk bounced forward its pointed end foremost and went clean through the bow and shot out into the sea the minute it did that the vessel was so lightened that it rose in the water and then we steamed over the bank there was one man knocked overboard by the shock when we struck but as soon as we missed him we went back after him and we got him all right you see when that obelisk went overboard its butt end which was heaviest went down first and when it touched bottom it just stood there and as it was such a big obelisk there was about five and a half feet of it stuck out of the water the man who was knocked overboard he just swum for that obelisk and he climbed up the hieroglyphics it was a mighty fine obelisk and the egyptians had cut their hieroglyphics good and deep so that the man could get a hand and foothold and when we got to him and took him off he was sitting high and dry on the pointed end of that obelisk it was a great pity about the obelisk for it was a good obelisk but as i never heard the company tried to raise it i expect it is standing there yet captain burris now put his pipe back into his mouth and looked at captain jenkinson who removed his pipe and said the queerest thing that ever happened to me was about a shark we was off the banks and the time of year was july and the ice was coming down and we got in among a lot of it not far away off our weather bow there was a little iceberg which had such a queerness about it that the captain and three men went in a boat to look at it the ice was mighty clear ice and you could see almost through it and right inside of it not more than three feet above the water line and about two feet or maybe twenty inches inside the ice was a whopping big shark about fourteen feet long a regular man-eater frozen in there hard and fast bless my soul said the captain this is a wonderful curiosity and i'm going to get him out just then one of the men said he saw that shark wink but the captain wouldn't believe him for he said that shark was frozen stiff and hard and couldn't wink you see the captain had his own ideas about things and he knew that whales was warm-blooded and would freeze if they was shut up in ice but he forgot that sharks was not whales and that they're cold-blooded just like toads and there is toads that has been shut up in rocks for thousands of years and they stayed alive no matter how cold the place was because they was cold-blooded and when the rocks was split out hopped the frog but as i said before the captain forgot sharks was cold-blooded and he determined to, to get that one out now you both know being housekeepers that if you take a needle and drive it into a hunk of ice you can split it the captain had a sail needle with him and so he drove it into the iceberg right along the side of the shark and split it now the minute he did it he knew that the man was right when he said he saw the shark wink for it flopped out of that iceberg quicker nor a flash of lightning what a happy fish he must have been ejaculated dorcas forgetful of the precedent so great was her emotion yes said captain jenkinson it was a happy fish enough but it wasn't a happy captain you see that shark hadn't had anything to eat for perhaps a thousand years until the captain came along with his sail needle 
surely you sailormen do see strange things now said the widow and the strangest thing about them is that they are true yes indeed said dorcas that is the most wonderful thing you wouldn't suppose said the widow ducket glancing from one bench of mariners to the other that i have a sea story to tell but i have and if you like i will tell it to you captain bird looked up a little surprised we would like to hear it indeed we would madam said he ay ay said captain burris and the other two mariners nodded it was a good while ago she said when i was living on the shore near the head of the bay that my husband was away and i was left alone in the house one morning my sister-in-law who lived on the other side of the bay sent me word by a boy on a horse that she hadn't any oil in the house to fill up the lamp that she always put in the window to light her husband home who was a fisherman and if i would send her some by the boy she would pay me back as soon as they bought oil the boy said he would stop on his way home and take the oil to her but he never did stop or perhaps he never went back and about five o'clock i began to get dreadfully worried for i knew if that lamp wasn't in my sister-in-law's window by dark she might be a widow before midnight so i said to myself i've got to get that oil to her no matter what happens or how it's done of course i couldn't tell what might happen but there was only one way it could be done and that was for me to get into the boat that was tied to the post down by the water and take it to her for it was too far for me to walk around by the head of the bay now the trouble was i didn't know no more about a boat and the managing of it than any one of you sailormen knows about clear starching but there wasn't no use of thinking what i knew and what i didn't know for i had to take it to her and there was no way of doing it except in that boat so i filled a gallon can for i thought i might as well take enough while i was about it and i went down to the water and i unhitched that boat and i put the oil can into her and then i got in and off i started and when i was about a quarter mile from the shore madam interrupted captain bird did you row or or was there a sail to the boat the widow looked at the questioner for a moment no said she i didn't row i forgot to bring the oars from the house but it didn't matter for i didn't know how to use them and if there had been a sail i couldn't have put it up for i didn't know how to use it either i used the rudder to make the boat go the rudder was the only thing i knew anything about i'd held a rudder when i was a little girl and i knew how to work it so i just took hold of the handle of the rudder and turned it round and round and that made the boat go ahead you know and madam exclaimed captain bird and the other elderly mariners took their pipes from their mouths yes that is the way i did it continued the widow briskly big steamships are made to go by a propeller turning round and round at their back ends and i made the rudder work in the same way and i got along very well too until suddenly when i was about a quarter of a mile from the shore the most terrible and awful storm arose there must have been a typhoon or a cyclone out at sea for the waves came up the bay bigger than houses and when they got to the head of the bay they turned around and tried to get out to sea again so in this way they continually met and made the most awful and roaring piling up of waves that was ever known my little boat was pitched about as if it had been a feather in a breeze and when the front part of it was cleaving itself down into the water the hind part was sticking up until the rudder whizzed around like a patent churn with no milk in it the thunder began to roar and the lightning flashed and three seagulls so nearly frightened to death that they began to turn up the whites of their eyes flew down and sat on one of the seats of my boat forgetting in that awful moment that man was their natural enemy i had a couple of biscuits in my pocket because i thought i might want a bite in crossing and i crumpled up one of these and fed the poor creatures then i began to wonder what i was going to do for things were a getting awfuler and awfuler every instant and the little boat was a heavin and a pitchin and a rollin and hoistin itself up first on one end then on the other to such an extent that if i hadn't kept tight hold of the rudder handle i'd slipped off the seat i was sittin on all of a sudden i remembered the oil in the can but just as i was puttin my fingers on the cork my conscience smote me am i going to use this oil i said to myself and let my sister-in-law's husband be wrecked for want of it and then i thought that he wouldn't want it at all that night and perhaps they would buy oil the next day and so i poured out about a tumbler full of it on the water and i can just tell you sailormen that you never saw anything act as prompt as that did 
in three seconds or perhaps five the water all around me for the distance of a small front yard was just as flat as a table and as smooth as glass and so inviting in appearance that the three gulls jumped out of the boat and began to swim about on it priming their feathers and looking at themselves in the transparent depths though i must say that one of them made an awful face as he dipped his bill into the water and tasted kerosene now i had time to sit quiet in the midst of the placid space i had made for myself and rest from working of the rudder truly it was a wonderful and marvellous thing to look at the waves was roaring and leaping up all around me higher than the roof of this house and sometimes their tops would reach over so that they nearly met and shut out all view of the stormy sky which seemed as if it was being torn to pieces by blaze and lightning while the thunder pealed so tremendous that it almost drowned the roar of the waves not only above and all around me was everything terrific and fearful but even under me it was the same for there was a big crack in the bottom of the boat as wide as my hand and through this i could see down into the water beneath and there was madam ejaculated captain bird the hand which had been holding his pipe a few inches from his mouth now dropping to his knee and at this motion the hands which held the pipes of the three other mariners dropped to their knees of course it sounds strange continued the widow but i know that people can see down into clear water and the water under me was clear and the crack was wide enough for me to see through and down under me was sharks and swordfishes and other horrible water creatures which i had never seen before all driven into the bay i haven't a doubt by the violence of the storm out at sea the thought of my being upset and fallen in among those monsters made my very blood run cold and involuntary like i began to turn the handle of the rudder and in a moment i shot into a wall of raging sea water that was towering around me for a second i was fairly blinded and stunned but i had the cork out of that oil can in no time and very soon you'd scarcely believe it if i told you how soon i had another placid mill pond surrounding of me i sat there a panting and fanning with my straw hat for you better believe i was flustered and then i began to think how long it would take me to make a line of mill ponds clean across the head of the bay and how much oil it would need and whether i had enough so i sat and calculated that if a tumbler full of oil would make a smooth place about seven yards across which i should say was the width of the one i was in which i calculated by a measure of my eye as to how many breadths of carpet it would take to cover it and if the bay was two miles across betwixt our house and my sister-in-law's and although i couldn't get the thing down to exact figures i saw pretty soon that i wouldn't have oil enough to make a level cutting through all those mountainous billows and besides even if i had enough to take me across what good would be the use of going if there wasn't any oil left to fill my sister-in-law's lamp while i was thinking and calculating a perfectly dreadful thing happened which made me think if i didn't get out of this pretty soon i'd find myself in a mighty risky predicament the oil can which i had forgotten to put the cork in toppled over and before i could grab it every drop of the oil ran into the hind part of the boat where it was soaked up by a lot of dry dust that was there no wonder my heart sank when i saw this glancing wildly around me as people will do when they are scared i saw the smooth place i was in getting smaller and smaller for the kerosene was evaporating as it will do even off woolen clothes if you give it time enough the first pond i had come out of seemed to be covered up and the great towering throbbing precipice of sea-water was a-closing around me casting down my eyes in despair i happened to look through the crack in the bottom of the boat and oh what a blessed relief it was for down there everything was smooth and still and i could see the sand on the bottom as level and hard no doubt as it was on the beach suddenly the thought struck me that the bottom would give me the only chance i had of getting out of the frightful fix i was in if i could fill that oil can with air and then putting it under my arm and taking a long breath if i could drop down on that smooth bottom i might run along toward shore as fast as i could and then when i felt my breath was given out i could take a pull at the oil can and take another run and then take another pull and another run and perhaps the can would hold air enough for me until i got near to shore to wade to dry land to be sure the sharks and other monsters were down there but then they must have been awfully frightened and perhaps they might not remember that man was their natural enemy anyway 
I thought it would be better to try the smooth water passage down there than stay and be swallowed up by the raging waves on top. So I blew the canful of air and corked it, and then I tore up some of the boards from the bottom of the boat so as to make a hole big enough for me to get through. And you sailor men needn't wriggle so when I say that, for you all know a diving bell hasn't any bottom at all, and the water never comes in. And so when I got the hole big enough, I took the oil can under my arm and was just about to slip down through it when I saw an awful turtle a-walking through the sand at the bottom. Now, I might trust sharks and swordfishes and sea serpents to be frightened and forget about their natural enemies, but I never could trust a gray turtle as big as a cart, with a black neck a yard long, with yellow bags to its jaws, to forget anything or remember anything. I'd as leave get into a bathtub with a live crab as go down there. It wasn't of no use so much as thinking of it, so I gave up that plan and didn't once look through that hole again. And what did you do, madam? asked Captain Bird, who was regarding her with a face of stone. I used electricity, she said. Now don't start as if you had a shock of it. That's what I used. When I was younger than I was then, and sometimes visited friends in the city, we often amused ourselves by rubbing our feet on the carpet until we got ourselves so full of electricity that we could put up our fingers and light the gas. So I said to myself that if I could get full electricity for the purpose of lighting the gas, I could get full of it for other purposes, and so, without losing a moment, I set to work. I stood up on one of the seats, which was dry, and rubbed the bottoms of my shoes backward and forward on it with such violence and swiftness that they pretty soon got warm and I began filling with electricity, and when I was fully charged with it from my toes to the top of my head, I just sprang into the water and swam ashore. Of course I couldn't sink, being full of electricity. Captain Bird heaved a long sigh and rose to his feet, whereupon the other mariners rose to their feet. Madam, said Captain Bird, what's to pay for the supper and the rest of the entertainment? the supper is twenty-five cents apiece said widow ducket and everything else is free gratis whereupon each mariner put his hand into his trousers pocket pulled out a silver quarter and handed it to the widow then with four solemn good evenings they went out to the front gate cast off captain jenkinson said captain bird and you captain burris clue him up afford you can stay in the bow captain sanderson and take the sheet lines i'll go aft all being ready, each of the elderly mariners clambered over a wheel, and having seated themselves, they prepared to lay their course for Cuppertown. But just as they were about to start, Captain Jenkinson asked that they lay to a bit, and clambering down over his wheel, he re-entered the front gate and went up to the door of the house, where the widow and Dorcas were still standing. "'Madam,' said he, "'I just came back to ask what became of your brother-in-law through his wife's not being able to put no light in the window.' The storm drove him ashore on our side of the bay, said she, and the next morning he came up to our house, and I told him all that had happened to me. And when he took our boat and went home and told that story to his wife, she just packed up and went out west and got divorced from him, and it served him right, too. Thank you, ma'am, said Captain Jenkinson, and going out of the gate he clambered up over the wheel and the wagon cleared for Cuppertown. When the elderly mariners were gone, the widow Ducket, still standing in the door, turned to Dorcas. Think of it, she said to tell all that to me in my own house, and after I had opened my one jar of brandied peaches that I've been keeping for special company. In your own house, ejaculated Dorcas, and not one of them brandied peaches left. The widow jingled the four corners in her hand before she slipped them into her pocket. Anyway, Dorcas, she remarked, I think we can now say we are square with all the world, and so let's go in and wash the dishes. Yes, said Dorcas, we're square. End of section 11. International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 
Recording by Lynn Thompson. International Short Stories, Volume One, American Stories, edited by William Patton. Section Twelve, The Count and the Wedding Guest by O. Henry. One evening, when Andy Donovan went to dinner at his Second Avenue boarding house, Mrs. Scott introduced him to a new boarder, a young lady, Miss Conway. Miss Conway was small and unobtrusive. She wore a plain, snuffy brown dress, and bestowed her interest, which seemed languid, upon her plate. She lifted her diffident eyelids, and shot one perspicuous judicial glance at Mr. Donovan, politely murmured his name, and returned to her mutton. Mr. Donovan bowed with the grace and beaming smile that were rapidly winning for him social, business, and political advancement, and erased the snuffy brown one from the tablets of his consideration. Two weeks later, Andy was sitting on the front steps enjoying his cigar. There was a soft rustle behind and above him, and Andy turned his head, and had his head turned. Just coming out the door was Miss Conway. She wore a night-black dress of crepe de crepe de all this thin black goods Her hat was black and from it dropped and fluttered an ebon veil filmy as a spider's web She stood on the top step and drew on black silk gloves Not a speck of white or a spot of color about her dress anywhere Her rich golden hair was drawn with scarcely a ripple into a shining smooth knot low on her neck her face was plain rather than pretty but it was now illuminated and made almost beautiful by her large gray eyes that gazed above the houses across the street into the sky with an expression of the most appealing sadness and melancholy gather the idea girls all black you know with the preference for crepe de older oh, crepe de chine that's it all black and that sad far away look and the hair shining under the black veil you have to be a blonde of course and try to look as if although your young life had been blighted Just as it was about to give a hop skip and a jump over the threshold of life a Walk in the park might do you good and be sure to happen out the door at the right moment and Oh, it'll fetch them every time But it's fierce now how cynical I am ain't it to talk about morning costumes this way Mr. Donovan suddenly reinscribed Miss Conway upon the tablets of his consideration He threw away the remaining inch and a quarter of his cigar That would have been good for eight minutes yet and quickly shifted his center of gravity to his low-cut patent leathers It's a fine clear evening Miss Conway he said and if the weather bureau could have heard the confident emphasis of his tones It would have hoisted the square white signal and nailed it to the mast to them that has the heart to enjoy it it is mr donovan said miss conway with a sigh mr donovan in his heart cursed fair weather heartless weather it should hail and blow and snow to be consonant with the mood of miss conway i hope none of your relatives i hope you haven't sustained a loss ventured mr donovan death has claimed said miss conway hesitating not a relative but one who but I will not intrude my grief upon you mr. Donovan intrude protested mr. Donovan why say miss Conway I'd be delighted that is I'd be sorry I mean I'm sure nobody could sympathize with you truer than I would Miss Conway smiled a little smile and oh it was sadder than her expression in repose 
laugh and the world laughs with you weep and they give you the laugh she quoted i have learned that mr donovan i have no friends or acquaintances in this city but you have been kind to me i appreciate it highly he had passed her the pepper twice at the table it's tough to be alone in new york that's a cinch said mr donovan but say whenever this little old town does loosen up and get friendly it goes the limit say you took a little stroll in the park miss conway don't you think it might chase away some of your mully grubs and if you'd allow me thanks mr donovan i'd be pleased to accept of the escort if you think the company of one whose heart is filled with gloom could be anyways agreeable to you through the open gates of the iron-railed old downtown park where the elect once took the air they strolled and found a quiet bench there is this difference between the grief of youth and that of old age youth's burden is lightened by as much of it as another shares old age may give and give but the sorrow remains the same he was my fiance confided miss conway at the end of an hour we were going to be married next spring i don't want you to think that i am stringing you mr donovan but he was a real count he had an estate and a castle in italy count fernando mazzini was his name i never saw the beat of him for elegance papa objected of course and once we eloped but papa overtook us and took us back i thought sure papa and fernando would fight a duel papa has a livery business in poughkeepsie you know finally papa came around all right and said we might be married next spring fernando showed him proofs of his title and wealth and then went over to italy to get the castle fixed up for us papa's very proud and when fernando wanted to give me several thousand dollars for my trousseau he called him down something awful he wouldn't even let me take a ring or any presents from him and when fernando sailed i came to the city and got a position as cashier in a candy store three days ago i got a letter from italy forwarded from poughkeepsie saying that fernando had been killed in a gondola accident that is why i'm in mourning my heart mr donovan will remain forever in his grave i guess i am poor company mr donovan but i cannot take any interest in no one i should not care to keep you from gaiety and your friends who can smile and entertain you perhaps you would prefer to walk back to the house now girls if you want to observe a young man hustle out after a pick and shovel just tell him that your heart is in some other fellow's grave young men are grave robbers by nature ask any widow something must be done to restore that missing organ to weeping girls in crepe de chine dead men certainly got the worst of it from all sides i'm awful sorry said mr donovan gently no we won't walk back to the house just yet and don't say you haven't got no friends in this city miss conway i'm awful sorry and i want you to believe i'm your friend and that i'm awful sorry i've got his picture here in my locket said miss conway after wiping her eyes with her handkerchief i never showed it to anybody but i will to you mr donovan because i believe you to be a true friend mr donovan gazed long and with much interest at the photograph in the locket that miss conway opened for him the face of count mazzini was one to command interest it was a smooth intelligent bright almost a handsome face the face of a strong cheerful man who might well be a leader among his fellows i have a larger one framed in my room said miss conway 
when we return i will show you that they are all i have to remind me of fernando but he ever will be present in my heart that's a sure thing a subtle task confronted mr donovan that of supplanting the unfortunate count in the heart of miss conway this his admiration for her determined him to do but the magnitude of the undertaking did not seem to weigh upon his spirits the sympathetic but cheerful friend was the role he essayed and he played it so successfully that the next half hour found him conversing pensively across two plates of ice cream though there was no diminution in the sadness of miss conway's large gray eyes before they parted in the hall that evening she ran upstairs and brought down the framed photograph wrapped lovingly in a white silk scarf mr donovan surveyed it with inscrutable eyes he gave me this the night he left for italy said miss conway i had one for the locket made from this a fine-looking man said mr donovan heartily how would it suit you miss conway to give me the pleasure of your company to coney next sunday afternoon a month later they announced their engagement to mrs scott and the other boarders miss conway continued to wear black a week after the announcement the two sat on the same bench in the downtown park while the fluttering leaves of the trees made a dim kinetoscopic picture of them in the moonlight But Donovan had worn a look of abstracted gloom all day He was so silent tonight that love's lips could not keep back any longer the questions that love's heart propounded What's the matter Andy you are so solemn and grouchy tonight? Nothing Maggie. I know better can't I tell you never acted this way before what is it? It's nothing much Maggie Yes, it is and I want to know I'll bet it's some other girl you are thinking about all right Why don't you go and get her if you want her take your arm away if you please? I'll tell you then said Andy wisely, but I guess you won't understand it exactly You've heard of Mike Sullivan haven't you big Mike Sullivan everybody calls him No, I haven't said Maggie and I don't want to if he makes you act like this who is he? He's the biggest man in New York said Andy almost reverently he can do about anything he wants to with Tammany or any other old thing in the political line He's a mile high and as broad as East River You say anything against Big Mike and you'll have a million men on your collarbone in about two seconds Why he made a visit over to the old country a while back and the Kings took to their holes like rabbits Well Big Mike's a friend of mine. I ain't more than juice high in this district as far as influence goes but Mike's as good a friend to a little man or a poor man as he is to a big one I Met him today on the Bowery and what do you think he does comes up and shakes hands? Andy he says I've been keeping cases on you You've been putting in some good licks over on your side of the street, and I'm proud of you What'll you take to drink? He takes a cigar and I take a highball. I told him I was going to get married in two weeks Andy says he send me an invitation so I'll keep in mind of it and I'll come to the wedding That's what big Mike says to me and he always does what he says You don't understand it Maggie, but I'd have one of my hands cut off to have big Mike Sullivan at our wedding It would be the proudest day of my life When he goes to a man's wedding, there's a guy being married that's made for life now That's why I've maybe been looking sore tonight why don't you invite him then if he's so much to the mustard said Maggie lightly There's a reason why I can't said Andy sadly. There's a reason why he mustn't be there 
don't ask me what it is for i can't tell you oh i don't care said maggie it's something about politics of course but it's no reason why you can't smile at me maggie said andy presently do you think as much of me as you did of your as you did of the count mazzini he waited a long time but maggie did not reply and then suddenly she leaned against his shoulder and began to cry to cry and shake with sobs holding his arm tightly and wetting the crepe de chine with tears there 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 soothed andy putting aside his own trouble and what is it now andy sobbed maggie i've lied to you and you'll never marry me or love me any more but i feel that i've got to tell andy there never was so much as a little finger of account i never had a bow in my life but all the other girls had and they talked about em and that seemed to make the fellows like em more and andy i look swell in black you know i do so i went out to a photograph store and bought that picture and had a little one made for my locket and made up all that story about the count and about his being killed so i could wear black and nobody can love a liar and you'll shake me andy and i'll die for shame and there never was anybody i liked but you and that's all but instead of being pushed away she found andy's arm folding her closely she looked up and saw his face cleared and smiling could you could you forgive me andy sure said andy it's all right about that back to the cemetery for the count you straightened everything out maggie i was in hopes you would before the wedding day bully girl andy said maggie with a somewhat shy smile after she had been thoroughly assured of forgiveness did you believe all that story about the count well not to any large extent said andy reaching for his cigar case because it's big mike sullivan's picture you've got in that locket of yours End of section 12International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gertrude Durrett. International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories, edited by William Patton. Section 13 Miss Tooker's Wedding Gift by John Kendrick Bangs Van Buren tossed his gloves impatiently on the table, removed his overcoat, and sat down before the fire. He was apparently deeply concerned about something, for when Niki, his Japanese valet, entered the room and placed the whiskey and soda on the little table at his side, Van Buren paid no more attention to him than he would to a vagrant sunmote that crossed his path. Long and steadily he gazed into the broad fireplace, watching the dancing flames at play, pausing only to light his pipe, upon which he pulled fiercely. Finally he spoke, leaning forward, and to all intents and purposes addressing the andirons, confound the money he said impatiently i wish to thunder the governor had left it to some orphan asylum or to found a chair in choctaw 
at some New England university, instead of to me, then I might have made something of myself. Here I am, 27 years old, and all the fame I ever got came from leading cotillions at Newport, and my sole contribution to the Commonweal has consisted of the fines I've paid into the public treasury for exceeding the speed limit. Life! I've seen a lot of it, haven't I, in this empty social shell I've been born into. He paused for a moment and poured a stiff four fingers of whiskey into a glass at his side. Bah, he shuddered as the odor of it greeted his nostrils. You're a poor kind of fuel for such an engine as I might have been if I'd been started on the right track. By Jove, Ethel is right. What good am I? What have I ever done to make myself worthwhile or to show that I have any character in me that is a jot better than that of any of the rest of our poor stenciled gold-plated society? He looked at the glass and made a wry face. I'll cut you out anyhow, he said, pushing the liquor away from him. That's something. Nicky, he called. The inscrutable Nikki obeyed the summons on the word. Take that stuff away, and hereafter don't bring it unless I call for it, said Van Buren. Any letters? One, said Nikki. A messenger brought him at eight o'clock. I get it. Nikki went to the escritoire and picked up the little square of blue envelope lying thereon and handed it to Van Buren. Thank you, Nikki. You may go now. I can get along without you until, well, say, noon tomorrow. Good night. Good night, said Nicky, and withdrew noiselessly. Hmm, ejaculated Van Buren. Even he is worth more to the world than I am. He does something, even if it is only for me, which is more than I can do. I don't seem to be able to do anything even for myself. With a sigh of discontent, Van Buren poked the fire for a moment and then settled himself in the armchair, holding the letter before his eyes as he did so. From Ethel, he said, probably my death warrant. Oh, well, why not? If she won't have me, she won't, that's all. Only one more drop of bitters in my cocktail. I may as well read it anyhow. It's like a cold plunge, and I hate to take it, but here goes. He tore open the envelope and, extracting the note, read it. Dear Harry, I have been thinking things over since you left me this afternoon, and I have changed my mind. Van Buren's eyes lighted with hope. I do care for you but I cannot see much happiness ahead for either of us unless one or the other of us changes radically. It may be my fault, but I cannot forget that if I married a man, I should want always to be proud of him and ambitious for his success in the world. If I were not ambitious, I could be proud of you just as you are, for I know you for the fine fellow that you are. While you do none of the things that I should love to have my future husband do, 
you at least do none of those other things that men make a practice of and that means so much misery for their womenkind whether they show it or not but dear harry why can you not make yourself more of a man than you are why be content with just the splendid foundation but let it lie gradually disintegrating because you have failed to rear upon it some kind of a superstructure that would be in keeping with what rests beneath you can i know you can and that is why i have decided to withdraw what appeared to be my final answer of this afternoon and if you want it to give you another chance if i want it ejaculated van buren lord knows how i want it come to me at the end of a year and show me the record of something accomplished that lifts you out of this awful social rut we have all managed to get into and my no of this afternoon may be turned into a yes and the misery of my heart be turned to joy of course you will say that it is all very easy for me to write this and to tell you to go out and do something but that the hard thing would be to tell you what to go out and do and you will be perfectly right general advice is the easiest thing in the world but the specific constructive suggestion is very different so i will give you the specific suggestion and it is this why do you not write a novel you used in your days at harvard to write clever skits for the lampoon and one or two of your little stories in the advocate showed that you at least know how to put words and sentences together in a pleasing way even if the themes of your stories were slight and the plots not very intricate do this harry surely with your experience in life you can think of something to write about apply yourself to this work during the coming year and when your book is published and has proven a success come to me again and maybe i shall have some good news to tell you it may be dear harry that you will not think it worthwhile for myself i hardly think the prize is worth the winning but you seem to feel differently about that if i may judge from what you said this afternoon and you did seem to mean it all every word of it you poor boy we shall meet of course as frequently as ever but until the year is up and that a year of achievement you must not speak of this matter again and must regard me as i shall hope in any event always to remain your devoted friend ethel tucker van buren laughed nervously as he finished the letter and again lit his pipe which had gone out while he read write a novel eh he muttered with a grin a nice easy task that a hundred and fifty thousand words all meaning something ah me why the dickens wasn't i born in an age when knighthood was in flower and my lady fair set sir hubert upon some easy task like putting on a tin suit and going out on the highway and swatting another potted sir bevedere on the head 
with an antique axe. The quest of the Golden Fleece was an easy stunt alongside of writing a novel these times, and I fear I'm more of a Jason than a Henry James. He turned to his desk, and the next five minutes were devoted to the writing of an acknowledgment of Miss Tooker's letter. I thank you for your suggestion, he wrote, and I truly think it will bear thinking over. Any suggestion that makes for the realization of my fondest hopes will bear thinking over, for I'm going to do what I can. I wish you had set me an easier task, however, like getting myself appointed ambassador to England or excise commissioner, for honestly, I do not feel the call of the pen. Nevertheless, my dearest Ethel, just to prove to you how honestly devoted to you I am, I shall tomorrow lay in a stock of pads, a brand new pen, and a new Roosevelt dictionary to guide me into the shortcut to success via the reformed spelling route. I have already got my leading characters, my heroine and my hero. She is the sweetest, fairest, dearest girl in the world and is to be named Ethel. The hero is to be a miserable, down-and-out young cub of a millionaire who, having been brought up in a hothouse atmosphere, never had a chance when exposed to the chilling blasts of the world. She, of course, will redeem poor Harry. That is to be my hero's name. From the pitfalls of Bridge, Newport, and the demon rum and of course she will marry him in the end ever your devoted harry p.s as expressive of my real feelings my story will be written in blue ink late one evening six months later van buren rose wearily from his desk but with a light of triumph in his eye there he said that is done the city of credit is at least au fait accompli. 137,567 words, and all about Newport, with a bit of the life of its thriving suburbs, New York and Boston, thrown in to relieve the sordidness of it all. He gazed affectionately at the pile of manuscript before him, it hasn't been half bad after all, he said. The first 10,000 words came like water from a fire hose. The second 10,000 were pure dentistry, tooth-pulling extraordinary. And the rest of it, well, it is queer how when you get interested in shoveling coal, how easy it all seems. And now for the hardest end of the job, to find a publisher who is weak-minded enough to print it. This indeed proved much the hardest part of Van Buren's work, for the reluctance of the large publishing houses of New York and Boston to place their imprint upon the title page of the City of Credit became painfully evident to the youthful author. The manuscript came back to Van Buren with a frequency that was more than ominous. I think he remarked ruefully to himself upon the occasion of the sixth rejection that i have discovered the principle of perpetual motion if there were only enough publishers in the world to last 
through all eternity, I could keep this manuscript going forever. Days passed, and with no glimpse of hope, until one morning, at a time when the City of Credit was about due for its thirteenth reappearance to his desk, Van Buren found in its stead a letter from Hutchins and Waterbury of Boston, apprising him of the fact that his novel had been read and was so well liked that our Mr. Waterbury will be pleased to have Mr. Van Buren call to discuss a possible arrangement under which the firm would be willing to undertake its publication. Good Lord, cried Van Buren as he read the letter over for the third time, even then barely crediting the possibilities of success that now loomed before him, and Boston people too. Will I call? Nicky, pack my suitcase at once and engage a seat for me on the Knickerbocker Limited. The following morning, an interview between our Mr. Waterbury and Van Buren took place in the firm's private office on Tremont Street, Boston. It appeared that while the readers of the firm of Hutchins and Waterbury had unanimously condemned the book, Mr. Waterbury himself, having read it, rather thought it might have a living chance. Some portions of your narrative are brilliant, and some of them are otherwise, Mr. Van Buren, said Mr. Waterbury frankly. But considering the authorship of the book and that it is a description of Newport life by one who is a part of its innermost circle, I am inclined to think it will prove interesting to the public. Your picture of the social wheels within wheels is so intimate and I judge so accurate that it would attract attention. I'm glad you think so, said Van Buren with a dry throat. The idea that his book might be published after all was really overpowering. On the other hand, the judgment of our readers is so unanimously adverse that Mr. Hutchins and I feel the need of proceeding cautiously. Now, what would you say to our publishing the book on uh, your account, as it were? You want me to, began Mr. Van Buren, to pay for the plates and advertising, said Mr. Waterbury. We will stand for the paper and the binding and will act as your agents in the distribution of the book, accounting to you for every copy printed and sold. Is, is that quite on regal? Asked Van Buren dubiously. It is quite customary, replied Mr. Waterbury. In fact, 90% of our business is conducted upon that basis. I see, said Van Buren. You hand us your check for $2,500 to cover the expenses I have specified, continued the astute publisher, and we will publish your book, allowing you a royalty of 50% on every copy sold. I suppose the first edition would be, said Van Buren hesitatingly, 500 copies, said Waterbury. The smaller your first edition, the sooner you are likely to go into a second. And, as you know, it is a great advantage for a book to go into a second edition quickly, if only for advertising purposes. Think it over. 
and let me know this afternoon if you can. I have to leave for Chicago tonight, and if we are to have the city of credit ready for the autumn trade, we should begin on it right away. I understand, said Van Buren. Well, I, I guess it's all right. It's only the principle of the thing. But if, as you say, it is quite customary, why, yes, I'll give you my check now. Do you want it certified? That will not be at all necessary, Mr. Van Buren, said Waterbury magnanimously. We are quite aware that your own signature to a check is a sufficient certification. The afternoon train for Newport carried Van Buren back to the social capital with a contract in his pocket, signed by Messrs. Hutchins and Waterbury, assuring the early publication of the City of Credit but in view of certain of its financial stipulations, jubilant as he was over the success of his first real step toward fame, Van Buren did not show it to Miss Tooker, as he might have done had it contained no reference to a check on the 10th National Bank of New York calling for the payment of $2,500 to the Boston firm of publishers. In September, the City of Credit was published and widely advertised by Messrs. Hutchins and Waterbury, and Van Buren took particular pains to secure the first copy from the press and to send it by messenger with a suitable inscription and a note to Miss Tooker. I send you my book, he wrote, not because I think it is worth reading, but for the double purpose of showing you that I have tried my best to fulfill your wishes and to assure the work of at least the circulation of one copy. It has all of my heart in it. For one reason or another, doubtless because there were quite 500 other novels of a similar character put forth about the same time, by the end of October the world had not yet been consumed by any conflagration of Van Buren's lighting. The book hangs fire, said Mr. Waterbury, when Van Buren called upon him at his Boston office to inquire how things were going. We printed 500 copies, and this morning's report shows 230 still on hand. A hundred and sixty were sent for review. I wish they hadn't been, said Van Buren, with a rueful smile. They have provided just 160 separate pieces of fuel for the critics to roast me with. Have there been any favorable reviews of the book? None that I have seen, but don't you worry about that, replied Mr. Waterbury comfortingly. It's the counting room, not the critics, that tell the story. Something may happen yet to pull us out. What, for instance, asked Van Buren. Oh, I don't know, said Waterbury. You might do something sensational and get it in the papers. That would help. It's up to you, Mr. Van Buren. I guess I'm all in, said Van Buren to himself as he walked down Tremont Street. Up to me to do something? By Jove. He interrupted himself abruptly. He had suddenly espied a copy of the City of Credit in a shop window 
up to me is it well i think i shall rise to the occasion and not by doing anything sensational either he entered the shop i want six copies of the city of credit he said quietly to the salesman it's a first-class story much of a demand for it no said the salesman we have only the window copy and we've had that over a month i can get them for you however all right said van buren just send them to charles h harney the helican club new york i'll pay for them now van buren paid his bill and returning to the street hailed a hansom take me to some good bookshop he said to the cabby instanter he was whirled around into winter street where stands one of boston's most famous literary distributing centers have you the city of credit he asked the salesman i think we have a copy in stock replied the latter if we have it we can get it for you do so please said van buren i want a dozen copies send them by express to charles h harney the helican club new york how much it's a dollar and a half book i think said the clerk the discount will make it one dollar twenty a dozen did you say twenty-five cents expressage that will make it fourteen dollars sixty-five cents van buren paid up without a whisper once in the handsome again he called up through the little hole in the top isn't there any other bookshop in town where i can get what i want he demanded there's a dozen of them replied the cabby then go to them all that night when van buren started for new york he had purchased a hundred and fifty copies of the city of credit and had ordered them all to be addressed to the clerk at the helican club with whom upon his arrival in town he arranged for their immediate reshipment to the harrison safety deposit storage company on 42nd street i'm going to have my happiness if i had to buy it van buren muttered doggedly as he crept into bed shortly after midnight and then tossing sleeplessly in his bed and at last rejoicing in the possession of his late father's millions to back him in his enterprise he laid the foundations of a plan comparable only to that of the wheat king who corners the market or the man of cotton who loads himself up with more bales of that useful commodity than all the fertile acres of the south could raise in seven seasons orders were dispatched by wire and by mail to all the booksellers in the land whose names and addresses van buren could get hold of department stores were put under contribution and their stock commandeered and one of the biggest booms in the whole history of literature set in the city of credit went into its second fifth twentieth fiftieth large edition hutchins and waterbury wrote van buren stating that a sudden turn in the market had made his book one of the six best sellers not only of this century but of all centuries their presses were seething to the point of white heat with the copies of the city of credit needed to supply the demand 
Their binders were working day and night with a double force, and their shipping department was pretty nearly swamped with the strain set upon it. Your royalty check in January 1st will be the fattest in the land, wrote Waterbury in a moment of enthusiasm. We are thinking of sending our staff of readers to the lunatic asylum and getting an entirely new set. An order for 4000 has come in from Chicago this morning. St. Louis wants 1500 and pretty nearly every other able-bodied town in the country is asking for from one to 150. By Christmas time, if the publisher's announcements were to be believed, the city of credit had attained to the enormous sale of 350000 and Van Buren was in receipt of a letter from a literary periodical asking for his photograph for publication in its February issue. This brought him a realization of the fact that he might now fairly claim to be considered a literary success. At any rate, he felt that he had now a right to approach Miss Tooker with a fair prospect of receiving from her a favorable answer to the question which she had a year before left an open one. An event showed that his feeling was justified, for two days later he enjoyed the blissful sensation of finding himself the accepted lover of the woman he had tried so hard to please. Is it to be yes, he whispered as they sat together in the conservatory of her father's city house. It has always been yes, she replied softly, and then what happened is not for your eyes or mine. Suffice it to say that Van Buren moved immediately from sordid old New York to become a dweller in the higher altitude of Elysium. Incidentally, the boom of the city of credit stopped almost as suddenly as it had begun. There was nobody, apparently, who had felt called upon to throw in the necessary number of dollars to sustain an already stimulated market, which puzzled Messrs. Hutchins and Waterbury exceedingly. They had hoped to live for the balance of their days upon the profits of their world's best seller. As the spring approached and the day set for Miss Tooker's wedding to Van Buren came nearer, the latter found himself daily becoming more and more a prey to conscience. There was a decidedly large fly in the amber of his happiness, for as he viewed the part he had played in the forced success of the city of credit, he began to see it in its true light. The first of March brought him his royalty check from Hutchins and Waterbury, and it was, as had been predicted, gratifyingly large and reduced materially what he had called his campaign expenses. In the same mail, however, was a bill from the storage company, in one of whose spacious chambers there reposed more copies of his novel than he liked to think. Over 250,000, the actual sales had been 260,000, in spite of the published announcements of a higher figure. The firm had 30 or 40,000 on hand, printed in a moment of confident enthusiasm when the flurry was at its height. 
both communications brought before van buren's mind's eye all too vividly the spectre of his duplicity and he was too much of a man of conscience to be able to put it lightly aside he tried to console himself with the idea that all is fair in love and war but he could not and his remorse caused him many a sleepless night finally it was on the eve of the posting of the wedding invitations scruple overcame him and he resolved that he could not honestly lead his bride to the altar with such a record of deceit upon his escutcheon especially in view of the fact that it was through this deceit that his happiness had been won it is better to lose her before the ceremony than after it he told himself and bitter though the confidence might be he made up his mind to tell miss tooker everything only i must break it gently he observed with this difficult errand in mind he called upon his fiancee and after the usual greeting he started in on his confession he had hardly begun it however when his courage failed him and with the oozing of that his words failed him also he did have the courage however to seek to reveal the exact situation in another way ethel dear he said awkwardly fumbling his gloves i want to show you something i have a a little surprise for you the girl eyed him narrowly for me she said yes he answered the fact is it's it's a sort of wedding present i have for you and i think you ought to see it before well now will you go miss tooker was interested at once and taking a hansom they were driven to the harrison storage warehouse on 42nd street arrived there van buren led her to the elevator and thence up to the small room in which lay the corroding and telltale packages an enormous bulk that were slowly but surely eating up his happiness why harry she cried as she gazed in bewilderment at the huge pile of unopened bundles are these all for me yes gulped van buren his face flaming but what do they contain she asked two hundred and fifty thousand copies of my my book the city of credit said van buren his eyes cast down you mean that you she began yes it's exactly that ethel i i bought em all to well to boom the sales and to make a name for myself in the world he said sheepishly or rather for you but i suppose now that you know then all this tremendous sale was arranged between you and your publishers to deceive me she asked not at all protested the unhappy van buren on the contrary i did it all myself hutchins and waterbury don't know any more about it than you did an hour ago no one knows except you and i van buren paused i could not let you marry me without knowing what i had done he said it would not be fair to to our future tell me all about it she said quietly and van buren made his confession complete 
He told her of his interview with Waterbury, how the latter had told him his book had fallen flat, how it was up to him to do something, how a sight of a single copy of the City of Credit in the Tremont Street shop window had tempted him first into a retail fall which had grown ultimately into a wholesale crime, as he put it. He did not spare himself in the least degree, humiliating as the narration of his story was to him. I suppose it is all up with me now, he said ruefully, when he had finished. I don't know, said Ethel quietly. I don't know, Harry. Perhaps. Take me home, please. I want to show you something. The drive back to the Tooker mansion was taken in silence. Van Buren despised himself too strongly to be able to speak, and Miss Tooker had fallen into a deep reverie which the poor fellow at her side feared meant irrevocable ruin to his hopes. Come in, said Miss Tooker gravely, as the cab drew up at the house. I want to take you up into our attic storeroom and then ask you a plain question. Harry, and then I want you to answer that question simply and truthfully. Marveling much, Van Buren permitted himself to be led to the topmost floor of Miss Tooker's house. Look in there, said she, opening the door of the storeroom. Do you see those packages? Yes, he said. They look very much like mine, only there are fewer. Do you know what they contain, she asked. Book, queried Van Buren, entering the room and tapping one of the bundles. Yes, yours, your books, 5,310 copies of the City of Credit. Harry, she said with a ruthful smile. You, he ejaculated hoarsely. Yes, I bought them all, some in Newport, some in New York, some at Lenox, Oh, everywhere. Now, tell me this, she interrupted. Do you suppose that I would condemn you for doing on a large scale what I have been doing on a smaller scale ever since last November? A ray of hope dawned in Van Buren's eyes. Ethel, he cried, seizing her by the hand. You bought all those for me? I certainly did, Harry, she said quietly, with my pin money and my bridge money and all the other kinds of money that I could wheedle out of my dear old daddy. But answer me, have I the right to sit in judgment on you? Not by a long shot, cried Van Buren. It would be an act of the most consummate hypocrisy. That is the way I look at it, dear, she whispered. And then, well, all I have to say is that I don't believe anything like what happened at that precise moment ever happened in an attic storeroom before, and the wedding invitations were mailed that very evening. End of section 13. International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jessica. International Short Stories, Volume 1, American Stories, 
Edited by William Patton. Section 14. The Fable of the Two Mandolin Players and the Willing Performer. By George Ade. A very attractive debutante knew two young men, who called on her every Thursday evening and brought their mandolins along. They were conventional young men, of the kind that you see wearing spring overcoats in the clothing advertisements. One was named Fred, and the other was Eustace. The mothers of the neighborhood often remarked, What perfect manners Fred and Eustace have! Merely as an aside, it may be added that Fred and Eustace were more popular with the mothers than they were with the younger set, although no one could say a word against either of them. Only it was rumored in keen society that they didn't belong. The fact that they went calling in a crowd and took their mandolins along may give the acute reader some idea of the life that Fred and Eustace held out to the young women of their acquaintance. The debutante's name was Myrtle. Her parents were very watchful, and did not encourage her to receive callers, except such as were known to be exemplary young men. Fred and Eustace were a few of those who escaped the blacklist. Myrtle always appeared to be glad to see them, and they regarded her as a darned swell girl. Fred's cousin came from St. Paul on a visit, and one day, in the street, he saw Myrtle, and noticed that Fred tipped his hat and gave her a stage smile. "'O oh, Queen of Sheba!' explained the cousin from St. Paul, whose name was Gus, as he stood stock-still and watched Myrtle's reversible plaid disappear around a corner. "'She's a bird. Do you know her well?' "'I know her quite well,' replied Fred, coldly. "'She is a charming girl.' "'She is all of that. You are a great describer. And now what night are you going to take me round to call on her?' Fred very naturally hemmed and hawed. It must be remembered that Myrtle was a member of an excellent family, and had been schooled in the proprieties, and it was not to be supposed that she would crave the society of slangy old Gus, who had an abounding nerve, and furthermore was as fresh as the mountain air. He was the kind of fellow who would see a girl twice, and then, upon meeting her the third time, he would go up and straighten her cravat for her, and call her by her first name. Put him into a strange company, en route to a picnic, and by the time the baskets were unpacked he would have a blonde all to himself, and she would have traded her fan for his college pin. If a fair looker on the street happened to glance at him hard, he would run up and seize her by the hand, and convince her that they had met, and he always got away with it, too. In a department store, while awaiting for the cash-boy to come back with the change, he would find out the girl's name, her favorite flower, and where a letter would reach her. Upon entering a parlor car at St. Paul, he would select a chair next to the most promising one in sight, and ask her if she cared to have the shade lowered. Before the train cleared the yards, he would have the porter bringing a footstool for the lady. At Hastings he would be asking her if she wanted something to read. At Red Wing he would be telling her that she resembled Maxine Elliot, and showing her his watch left to him by his grandfather, a prominent Virginian. At La Crosse he would be reading the menu card to her, and telling her how different it is when you have some one to join you in a bite. At Milwaukee he would go out and buy a bouquet for her, and when they rode into Chicago they would be looking but of the same window, and he would be arranging for her baggage with the transfer man. After that they would be old friends. Now, Fred and Eustace had been at school with Gus, and they had seen his work, and they were not disposed to introduce him into one of the most exclusive homes in the city. They had known Myrtle for many years, but they did not dare to address her by her first name, and they were positive that if Gus attempted any of his usual tactics with her she would be offended, and naturally enough they would be blamed for bringing him to the house. But Gus insisted. He said he had seen Myrtle, and she suited him from the ground up, 
and he proposed to have friendly doings with her. At last they told him they would take him if he promised to behave. Fred warned him that Myrtle would frown down any attempt to be familiar on short acquaintance, and Eustace said that as long as he had known Myrtle he had never presumed to be free and forward with her. He had simply played the mandolin. That was as far along as he had ever got. Gus told them not to worry about him. All he asked was a start. He said he was a willing performer, but as yet he never had been disqualified for crowding. Fred and Eustace took this to mean that he would not overplay his attentions, so they escorted him to the house. As soon as he had been presented, Gus showed her where to sit on the sofa. Then he placed himself about six inches away and began to buzz, looking her straight in the eye. He said that when he first saw her he mistook her for Miss Prentice, who was said to be the most beautiful girl in St. Paul. Only, when he came closer, he saw that it couldn't be Miss Prentice, because Miss Prentice didn't have such lovely hair. Then he asked her the month of her birth and told her fortune, thereby coming nearer to holding her hand within eight minutes than Eustace had come in a lifetime. "'Play something, boys,' he ordered, just as if he had paid them money to come along and make music for him. They unlimbered their mandolins and began to play a Sousa march. He asked Myrtle if she had seen the new moon. She replied that she had not. So they went outside. When Fred and Eustace finished the first piece, Gus appeared at the open window and asked them to play the Georgia Camp Meeting, which had always been one of his favorites. So they played that, and when they had concluded there came a voice from the outer darkness, and it was the voice of Myrtle. She said, I'll tell you what to play. Play the intermezzo. Fred and Eustace exchanged glances. They began to perceive that they had been backed into a siding. With a few potted palms in front of them, and two cards from the Union, they would have been just the same as a hired orchestra. But they played the intermezzo and felt peevish. Then they went to the window and looked out. Gus and Myrtle were sitting in the hammock, which had quite a pitch toward the center. Gus had braced himself by holding to the back of the hammock. He did not have his armor on Myrtle, but he had it extended in a line parallel with her back. What he had done wouldn't justify a girl in saying, Sir! but it started a real scandal with Fred and Eustace. They saw that the only way to get even with her was to go home without saying good-night, so they slipped out the side door, shivering with indignation. After that, for several weeks, Gus kept Myrtle so busy that she had no time to think of considering other candidates. He sent books to her mother, and allowed the old gentleman to take chips away from him at poker. They were married in the autumn, and father-in-law took Gus into the firm, saying that he had needed a good pusher for a long time. At the wedding, the two mandolin players were permitted to act as ushers. Moral. To get a fair trial of speed, use a pacemaker. End of section 14.